You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 506. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. With your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 2D at the Hyatt Regency in Wichita, Kansas. Today's show is recorded on the 21st of January, 2022. In today's episode, The tower orders an Emirates flight to reject takeoff at high speed in Dubai. A testy exchange between an LAX controller and an American Airlines pilot. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, rumbas and quarrels. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 506 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins in New York City! Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta. And joining me today... From his home studio in the Valley of the Sun, world traveler, airplane mechanic, Breitling Cognoscenti, fitness hound, and international air freight captain, it's Captain Rick. Oh, wow. Captain Rick, that's, that is so proper. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Happy to be back. Let's talk some airplanes. Let's do it. And also joining us from his studio. Nope. In Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Misfire. A professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways. It's Captain Nick. That's what she said, Jeff. Misfile. Oh, okay. (laughs) I wasn't following that. Um, Okay. Uh, That's touche. And also joining us from our studio in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, retired financier and aviation enthusiast spreadsheet master and our producer director is liz piper hi everybody hello hello let's do some aviation podcasting i like it let the pod begin Stand by for news. All right, let's start off with this. Emirates, Boeing 777, a lot of people call it the 777-300, registration Alpha 6 Echo Quebec Alpha, performing flight 524 from Dubai to Hyderabad. Hyderabad? I don't know. I've already, I'm already screwing up. Hyderabad. Hyderabad. 
India, was accelerating for takeoff from Dubai's runway 30 right when the crew was instructed to reject takeoff at high speed, above 100 knots. Due to a crossing aircraft, the aircraft slowed safely and vacated the runway via taxiway November 4 behind the aircraft that had crossed the runway. An Emirates Boeing 777-300. Okay, are they doing this to me again? Yes, it's uh, stuff that I just read. According to information the Aviation Herald received from two independent sources. By the way, this is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, according to information the Aviation Herald received from two independent sources, Flight 524 began their takeoff roll without air traffic control clearance, ATC clearance. Tower subsequently instructed 524 to stop. According to information, Flight 524 may have reached 130 knots when they rejected the takeoff. According to ADSB transmitted by the aircraft's transponder, 524 had reached 100 knots over the ground, about 790 meters or 2,600 feet down the runway, and about 5,700 feet short of taxiway November 4. Uh, the Flight 568 continued their taxiing and departed normally. Uh, 524 taxied back to the holding point of runway 30 right and departed about 30 minutes after the rejected takeoff. That was a pretty quick turnaround, I think, for a high-speed abort. Um, on January 13th, 2022, the airline reported that the Flight 524 was instructed by tower to abort. The crew rejected takeoff successfully. There was no damage to the aircraft. There were no injuries. An internal investigation has been initiated. UAE's United Arab Emirates, GCAA, has also opened an investigation. Now, I'm going to kind of go to our 777 expert, Miami Rick. Hey, everybody. So, uh, yeah, this is a uh, one of those issues where you want to make sure that you have clearance for takeoff. You know, that's, that's, what? It's pretty, pretty self-explanatory there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I got on that. No, but seriously. Okay, the, um, let's move on then. <laughs> <laughs> 30 minutes after after reject takeoff, that's... Um, that is kind of quick. I, I, I did think. I did think that's a, that's a bit quick. And uh, every every time, any time we we go through, we reject the takeoff. Um, at least part of uh, you know, depending on on the airline and the operating manual and all that, uh, you reference um, as part of your briefing what's called the break cooling schedule. And so, or schedule. Uh, the, or schedule if you're on the other side yes. of the pond over there. Um, and so part of the um. I guess uh, tasks of the pilot monitoring is trying, you know, trying to uh, have a general idea of when the rejected takeoff happened, so that you can enter the break cooling, st- uh, break cooling schedule table with that piece of information. That'll tell you the amount of time required for the brakes to cool down to a point where you can uh, safely uh, conduct the takeoff again. Not because you can't do the takeoff, but because in the event of another rejected takeoff, the brakes uh, might not be uh, effective at stopping the aircraft if they're hot. So that's that's one thing there. Um, good thing that uh, nothing happened here uh, and everybody went on their merry way. Now, these three slides that I have uh, immediately after this have to do more with the incident uh, that happened a, a few days prior to that, where the and I wanted to talk about this since, since it's been a little while since I've been on here. Um, 
when that triple seven took off and it didn't rotate until past the end of the runway and oh, that whole deal where yeah 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 where where the uh you know they were flying 70 feet over the uh over the top of uh of, of, of houses they're blowing shingles off everybody's roof and all that stuff and so when i saw that um it really did uh, i don't know i just just I, I couldn't understand how that, that that could happen and then i started thinking about it and obviously that had to do with a I guess an oversight during the operant flight crews pre-flight procedure. Um, and so to understand kind of, and give you just, I know you guys probably talked about this already and all that, but I just kind of wanted to give my two cents on the whole thing. Um, when you look at what we're looking at here, it's called the primary flight display, right? So that's the screen that sits in front of each uh, pilot. And uh, it's, it's got all your information there along the top. You have what's called the flight mode enunciations, which is the modes of the autopilot flight directory system. You have, it's divided in three. The one on the left gives you the status of the auto throttle, which is in essence, cruise control. Think of it as cruise control for the, uh, for your car, right? So you set it to speed and the auto throttle is going to maintain that speed. Uh, the center uh, portion there is your, the status of your uh, lateral guidance or roll mode. And the one on the right is the status of your vertical guidance or your pitch mode. And then right below that, where it says AFDS status, uh, AFDS, of course, stands for Automatic Flight Director System, is going to give you an idea of whether the autopilot is on, which is the case in this particular slide, says A slash P, autopilot. And if it wasn't on, uh, it would say F slash D, or flight director. Um, after reading and um, going into forums and kind of having uh, and kind of going through what everyone had to say regarding what hap- may have happened here, I do remember um, when I was um, flying the triple seven, we did have a circular that said, do not set the altitude to field elevation or, or, or just basically don't mess around with the altitude, um, selector up on the mode control panel, the mode control panel. If you scroll on down to the next slide, there, um, is the piece of equipment that sits up on the glare shield between the captain and the first officer. Um, and, um, that mode control panel there, has different uh, areas where you can select the speed on the very left uh, side of it. Uh, moving over to the right, you have your head and select uh, knob there. Over one spot to the right, you have your vertical speed uh, selection, which is not really used on the ground ever. And then over to the right, you have your altitude selector. So the idea is whenever you get on the airplane and you go through your pre-flight procedure, the altitude window is left as is until you receive your clearance for the next sector. Now, what altitude is going to be on there? Well, it's very likely going to be whatever the missed approach altitude was for the airport that you happen to be in, whatever procedure it was that you that the previous uh, crew flew. And so, when these guys, um, well, I'm not saying they did it, but when when this happened and the altitude was selected to zero or within 20 feet of field elevation, um, a very an intricate part of the automatic flight director system, um, which is called the flight director, and if you look um, back either up or down, it doesn't matter. You can you can you can go down there. You're going to see two magenta bars basically across, right, and um, the vertical cross, the vertical line is going to be your pitch, uh, your uh, your roll bar. It's basically going to tell you, based on whatever the input is into the autopilot, whether to steer 
left or steer right. And then the 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 horizontal bar there is going to be your pitch bar is going to tell you whether to pitch up or down based on whatever input is being put into the uh, into the autopilot. And so when you select the al- the altitude to zero or twenty feet from your uh, field elevation, your pitch bar is going to capture that altitude, and the active mode of the autopilot is now going to be alt hold, which basically means that you hold that altitude. Um, now, what I don't understand here is why the flying pilot would rely on flight director commands during the takeoff uh, as part of as, as part of the pre-flight on on the on the uh, on the on the on the you know before start checklist and i do believe i have a a slide of that as well you go through the mode control panel making sure that the speed is selected to whatever the v2 speed is or the 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 uh, safe climb out speed for single engine operations your heading is usually going to be whatever your the runway heading is and the altitude is going to be your initial cruise or, or initial cleared altitude one of the cool things about the 777 is that um you and certainly i know because i've i've done it in dubai myself uh, you receive your clearance via data link. And the cool thing about it is that altitudes will show up in blue. And so when you set your altitude on the mode control panel to whatever the clearance altitude is, it'll go from blue to green, letting you know that that is, in fact, the cleared altitude and both altitudes or both uh, uh, values match. And so... Um, I don't understand how the crew missed that. Perhaps they're, you know, just flying on the backside of the clock. I know this happened around three, three in the morning. I think it was um, tired, uh, but there were four pilots on board. I do believe. Correct. Yes, there were. And so how, how do four people, you know, miss that? But even if, but that. even if let's just say, I don't, I don't know how they missed that. That's one of those critical things when you're doing in my airplane, where you're doing the navigation briefing, you know, that's the clear to altitude on your departure is in that mode control panel altitude mm-hmm. window. Okay, so let's say you've completely screwed that up. But who, what professional pilot do you know is going to go, oh, well, normally, what would be the normal pitch attitude on takeoff for a 777, Rick? Well, um, and that's another thing I was going to mention. Um, so whenever you switch the flight director selector to on, the pitch bar is going to be uh, at about eight degrees and the roll bar is going to be centered. Your modes should be, and this is part of your pre-flight of your before start pre-flight checklist and of your cockpit preparation, really it's going through the, through the uh, FMAs of flight mode negotiations and making sure that they make sense. You're on the ground. When you switch the FD uh, flight directors on your roll mode is going to be toga, take off, go around your pitch mode is going to be toga, take off, go around. And obviously, the status of the autopilot is going to be F slash D, flight director. So you go blank, toga, toga, flight director. Your pitch bar is going to be about eight degrees up. Now, on the takeoff itself, the flight director does not work until the air ground sensor, and this is on the 777, the air ground sensor on the nose gear extends. Okay. Once that happens, the aircraft, the, uh, the automatic flight director system takes a snapshot of what that track is. And that is your lateral pitch mode until 
either uh, LNAV or lateral navigation automatically engages at 50 feet, which in these case, uh, which which uh, on triple sevens and and on on uh, airports that have these very accurate RNAV uh, departure procedures is the case. You arm LNAV on the ground, and so that at 50 feet, LNAV becomes the active roll mode, and now that that roll bar commands whatever the 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 departure procedure says that you should fly. You know, on on the lateral aspect of things, and then the pitch bar is not accurate until you're basically airborne because eight degrees is is, is is just where it goes when you turn it on. On the triple seven, ideally, um, you want to rotate smoothly about two to three degrees per second to an initial pitch of about 15 degrees. Both engines working, 12 and a half degrees, one engine working. So why? Exactly right. If you see the pitch bar down, like way down, would you actually push the yoke forward to fly the flight director pitch bar instead of going, wait a minute, that makes no sense. Exactly. I should be up here at 15 degrees nose high. And there's another thing. I don't, I, I don't understand this. Runway lights, the center line runway lights start um, alternating red and white at 3000 feet. Yeah. That the should give you an indication. That yeah. The last getting close to the end is, of the runway. Right. The last thousand feet is red. The, the runway edge lights turn yellow at 2000 feet remaining, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, I, I really don't understand what the hell. I mean, just, just, just rotate. Man. I think there were like 175 feet, about four to 5,000 feet beyond the end of the runway. 75 feet. 75. 75. I'm sorry. Liz is telling me 75. Holy crap. Can you imagine living in that uh, residential area um, and hearing a 777-300 with full takeoff thrust over over your house at 75 feet? Now, if you look at the 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 digital data of um, well, I don't I don't I mean sometimes this ADS type data tends to be a little um, inaccurate, but if you look at the the climb rate that was attained after they figured out what the heck was going on. Did you see what the climb rate was? No. It was like a blue angel going straight up. <laughs> they have all that they extra have a lot of energy. energy. <laughs> right. You know? And, uh, you know, the, the, the flaps were oversped to hell, you know, just everything just went down, down the drain. Um, but I, I, again, I don't understand why you don't, it just, just doesn't make sense. Just and then do. they went ahead and flew across the Atlantic ocean to Dulles, Oh yeah, so that was Hello. that was that was very interesting. Now, when I heard about this 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 incident, I, it it made me think about another incident. Um, it happened in um, one of uh, Captain Nick's favorite destinations, um, Lagos. Uh, one of mine as well. Love it. <laughs> he loves that place. You miss it, don't you? He really he really does. He's taking Julie um, there this, for holiday. This was a seven as well, and these guys. Um, uh, we're setting up the flight deck for the last sector. So they'd, they'd flown in from Port Harcourt to Lagos, and that's a, a relatively short sector. And then the following sector, Lagos to Paris, was going to be flown by the captain. Now, the captain was he, – he wanted to get the flight going because they had some kind of, uh, I think, rest requirement issues or something going on. There's, there's That's what I, – I mean, I tell you, people. Do not, do not ever, ever hurry. Don't hurry ever because when you hurry is when you miss things. You know, every, just about every accident report that that deals with stuff like this or control flight in the rain or, you know, is because the crew allowed themselves to be 
put in a position where they miss things either by ATC or by the, you know, the rest requirements or the cabin crew or it's like, just don't hurry. You're in there. And if you're going to be late, you're late. If you're a minute late, you might as well be five, five hours late. You're late. It's fine. Don't hurry. So this guy, so these guys were setting up the flight deck for the trip back from Lagos to Paris and the captain missed the, um, the auto throttle uh, switches. So if, if you, if you look up there at the, at the, um, at the top left of the mode control panel, you have two switches. It says a slash T arm. You have one for the left engine, one for the right engine, right? So you have, that's one of the cool things about the triple seven, the seven, eight, seven, you have in, independent autopilot, um, auto throttles for each engine, which is really nice because you can literally do a cat three, um, fail, uh, uh fail passive approach auto land on a single engine, which is, you really can't do that on many other airplanes. At least that I know. You can on an Airbus. Oh, you can. Well, there you oh, go. yes. There you go. And you could do and that. So, on the, and the and we don't have independent auto thrust, you see, yeah. but there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Very nice, very nice. Well, you, you, you can't on the you can't on the seven five seven six. You can't on the oh you can on the seven four. You just can't do it with two engines out of the seven four. You got to land it manually there. But that's 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 beyond that's that's you know neither neither here nor there. So these guys um, miss arming the auto throttle, and so because they're in a hurry, uh, they taxi to the runway and they go to take off and they go you know the, the captain was the captain the, the pilot flying he goes to stand up the, the thrust levers um stabilize the engines at whatever it is 60 70 percent on one whatever it is hits the toga button on the thrust quadrant and what that does is that's going to arm um the auto throttle system so that uh, engages the servos and the in the thrust levers and sets the required pre-selected uh n1 uh value for takeoff right or n1 is basically um a percentage of RPM of, of RPM is basically a power setting. So he goes to hit that and nothing happens. In the meantime, the airplane keeps accelerating because they do have the power set at whatever it is to have the engine stabilized prior to hitting toga. So they go through 30 knots, they go through 80 knots, whatever it is. The problem with these airplanes is that once you hit 80 knots indicated airspeed, the only way to engage the auto throttle is once you're airborne past 400 feet. So nothing was going to happen until they go, they cross 400 feet. And so the first officer sets the power manual, which is what you're, you're supposed to do. But the captain did something really interesting here. And this is where it made me think that this captain must have come from another Boeing product, either a 7.6 or a 7.47. Because if you look to the left of the auto throttle arm switches, that's the A slash P button, autopilot button. Right, and it's very close to the button just below it, and to the right, directly underneath the auto throttle arm button. That is your climb continuous thrust. Yeah, right below it, it says AT auto throttle. If you can't arm the um, auto throttle with the toga switches, and that's an uh, operative, the way that you actually arm the auto throttle is by pressing the AT button, and that'll select the N one required for takeoff. But apparently the guy went for the uh, the autopilot button, effectively engaging the autopilot on the ground, right? <laughs> and so um, they go barreling down to the runway, you know, V1, rotate, nothing happens. They go to pull back. And obviously the elevator is going to be locked because the, the autopilot throttle uh, servos are in effect. Yeah. 
Exactly. And there isn't a com that remember that your toga mode on the on your, your toga pitch mode is not a climb. It's not a climb uh, command. It's just it's, it's just it's just speed and power. Right. So they're basically the autopilot has no way of climbing the aircraft off the runway because the yeah, the, the autopilot, the, 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 the servos are locked. There's no way because the autopilot is, 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 is engaged. So they go past V1, they reject and they're able to stop the airplane before they go off the end of the runway there. So what if they were to do something like this? Click, 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 click. Exactly. Exactly. Right. They now, have control the, of the airplane and. But then you have to, I mean, and that's the, that's the other thing. Um, the FMA is what's going on in real time. And uh, I see it on the line a lot, um, you know, at my current airline and the airline prior to that, where, you know, a lot of people start, you know, hitting buttons and, you know, doing things. Uh, and, don't get and, me started with that. And, no, and nothing's yeah, just happening. like fly the effing airplane like we exactly. that's why we have controls <laughs> exactly right if it's not doing what you wanted to do yes fly the that thing F? fly the thing yes exactly. fly the flipping aircraft thank you gubby <laughs> come on exactly right so uh that was uh that's that's wow. that's what uh that it, it it made me think about that now i'm not saying that's what happened because obviously mm -hmm. the data doesn't say that but uh these two are very very similar very similar yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what the uh, I, this just to, to me the bottom line is that we're now seeing the fruits, the really icky, stinky, rotting fruits of the uh, way that we've been training pilots the last decade, couple of decades, and it's this reliance on automation that was warned. You know, we, we were warned about back in the 90s. I mean, that's when uh, the American Airlines uh, guy, you know, the but children. But you see, we have become what I call children of the magenta. Children of the magenta. Yeah, that was in 1997. You know, yeah. and the funny thing is that to this day, I reference those videos all the time. I'll go back and watch them. They're still all the time. Cause yeah. They're pertinent to what I mean, we're experiencing some of the now. That, some of the things that, yeah, some of the things that he has to say about, you know, um, nose-up attitude recovery, nose-low altitude recovery, uh, you know, um, uh, flight control malfunctions, and, um, you know, uh, dissimilar flaps or dissimilar slats. or you know, it's, it's stuff that, that, that really does apply, you know, to, to this day. So um, Gubby here says that uh, they had an issue with um, – the oh, this one Harry says uh, Emirates also had an issue post uh, bounce landing. Yeah, that, that was a little different, but yeah, it does it does have to do with with reliance on automation. But also, this is where it comes down to um, verifying verifying what your FMA say, your flight mode initiation say. Because what happens on the triple seven, seven eight, seven four, seven five, all that stuff is that when you get below uh, five feet radio altitude, you enter what's called the toga dead zone, which basically means that. If you hit your toga button or you go around paddles, whatever the case may be, based on the aircraft that you're flying, the thrust will not engage and go around mode. So you have to manually set the thrust and go around mode. Um, so that's what happened there. They basically hit the toga buttons and then they went to configure the aircraft, uh, both pitch wise and flaps and gear and all that stuff, uh, to fly away from the ground. Uh, but they didn't realize that the auto throttle hadn't engaged in toga mode because they were in that toga dead zone. So that's what happened there. But again, you know, just verify your FMAs always. And if the airplane's not doing what you are, are expecting it to do, disconnect, 
and just fly manually. So, Great comment from IHAL Boxes here. IHAL Boxes is from a management perspective. You don't want to hire in people who think for themselves. What if they think they need a raise? No, come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I just, that, that's the bottom line to me. And we we're seeing a lot of this uh, from our uh, live audience is that, you know, it, it, the automation is wonderful and it's, and it's added a lot to safety and all that kind of stuff. But if the automation is not doing what you think that the airplane should be doing, then you have to like start removing some or all of the automation and just fly do the airplane. Do they know what the airplane should be doing? Exactly right. Do they and, know? And, well, Liz is asking a, a very pertinent question. Do they know what the airplane is doing? Well, God, I hope so, Liz. I mean, we're professional. We uh, get yeah, paid but- a lot of money to fly these airplanes with, you know, hundreds of passengers sitting in the back of the airplane. And we are expected to know what the airplane should be doing. And if it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing, then we should make it do what we need it to do. And we can't. I hope so too. Uh, we can't just allow the uh, automation to be our babysitter and and do everything and hope that it's going to work. Because if if we're if we have that kind of attitude, then we might as well be in that world of no pilots, because that's what that is all about, and that's why. <laughs> The we can't ever get to the point where there is no human up there because the automation is not going to be able to handle every single situation that might be encountered. And the human brain is a very powerful thing. The pilot brain, I like to say, uh, is is uh, something we have to use, and there's a reason why we get paid big bucks to fly these airplanes. And there's another thing, um, having obviously been an FO and, and captain and and all that. Uh, First officers think that the captain has all the answers. It's not the truth. No. I rely on my first officers a hundred percent. Um I I rely on their knowledge. I rely on their expertise. I rely on them knowing what they're doing. And they rely on me as well. It's not that the captain is, you know, God almighty of the flight. That doesn't work that way. Um, we, yeah, we do have the final say and we do sign for the airplane and we are responsible for the safety and continuity of the operation. But the input from first officers is just is, is priceless, um, especially during high workload, you know, very dynamic situations where you know the weather is less than optimum, or the or uh, another one. Um, the other day, I went over to uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. I hadn't been there in many years. Um, my my FO goes down there all the time, and I was I, I basically you know just. I told him, hey, I mean, you've been down here more than I have, certainly. So please let me know what the best course of action is, you know, for us getting to the gate safely from the runway. We part, we landed on the north side of the field, and there was some construction going on. And and uh, uh, you know, he's like, you know, take this, take this turn a little slow, go a little wide here, go, you know, just. And so it's the 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 expertise that the for, you know that the first officers provide is truly truly priceless so oh, yeah. the fact that you're just an fo it did i mean it's uh it's your responsibility as well so it's this is a team sport and if you're not using all the members of your team then you're an idiot mm-hmm. Nicholas. hey i know it all no, you nick don't. you've been quite quiet during the all of this discussion what what's your take on this 
Well, there's nothing you guys have said that I'm going to even um, really add to because you've covered just about every box. I can't agree with the relatively simple concept that people don't understand uh, the difference between the automatics and manual flying of the airplane. That, For me, the failure, for example, of the guy to rotate the aircraft and fly it away from the runway at the appropriate speed, there has got to be more than just a misunderstanding of the automatics. I don't think that's where the failure in his head occurred. Uh, it's not a case of click, 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 fly the airplane away from the runway because, you know, you're manually flying the airplane yourself already. So I'm not sure that that is a, an appropriate uh, example of a kind of children of the magenta failure. It's not a failure to understand what the automatics are doing with the airplane. It's a failure of your basic piloting skills. So I'm not quite sure where that comes in to the equation. If you're, if you're, no longer able to do the simplest things to keep your aircraft safe. It's got to be something very fundamentally wrong with you as a pilot. And I'm not sure it's in the training, although by the time you're in an airline, those skills should already be very well honed because, you know, in the States, most places you've got, pardon me, hundreds if not thousands of hours uh, of skill uh, not using well, presumably, automatics. Uh, and now the automatics are just providing another layer of skill you need to acquire. Uh, and I also agree with some of the comments there is that if uh, you're having trouble understanding the automatics, you're not doing the your job properly. Um, Rick has very clearly explained uh, exactly how it works. Uh, Rick is doing the same job as an awful lot of other pilots. And I worry that he understands, yet a lot of other pilots don't. And if you meet a pilot who doesn't understand the automatics, he's not doing his job properly. Um, so th that's just another uh, view. I, I I don't know why these guys uh, did or allowed the aircraft to do what they let it do or did what they did. I, I just don't understand. And how is it that not only one pilot, but there were four pilots in that cockpit? How is it that yep. all four let that happen. Yeah, that, yeah. that's that's just yeah, I, the mind. I, I'm floored by it, quite honestly. I, I, we were floored by it when we first talked about it yep. last episode or the episode before. And yep. I'm still, I, I, I haven't seen anything that would possibly explain what was going on and how that's how this happened. No, I don't, no. I don't understand. Quite right. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Van, <laughs> I like that. Tim Van Ram, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm in the right room because I definitely am not the smartest person in this room right here that we're doing here. Um, so, and uh, our, in our room encompasses all those wonderful people that are in our chat room. And we're seeing a lot of amazingly uh, pertinent and wise, insightful comments by our live audience. So thank you uh, guys and gals for participating the way you are and chipping uh, in. yeah chipping in 
using our CRM here with our chat room. We are using that CRM with the chat room. Thank you, Liz. And uh, wow, I can't believe that we are only, <laughs> this is just the first news item. Yeah, we're going to do any feedback today. Yeah, we might not do that. any feedback, Liz. We'll see. Um, <laughs> all, it's all news all the time. Yeah. Well, that's okay. We'll, we'll do okay. our best. Yeah, it's yeah. okay. All right. Are you all ready to move on to our second item? This, this one sounds one interesting. Let's do it. <laughs> <This> is, <laughs> oh, boy. And, here we go. Have, having been there, I'm just like, oh, man. It's a bus. Right. Okay. Um, and, and I should put now Liz is saying in my ear, it's a bus. Well, you know what? It turns out that it really doesn't matter whether it's a Boeing no, product or an Airbus. I know. I know you know that, Liz. Uh, but it's just, um, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter what brand it's just like this is just crazy well, in fact, stuff that's very telling that we're it's doing happening on both. Yep. uh let's see final report incident arabia arabia uh a320 at sharja or sharja sharja yep sharja on september 18th back in 2018 ah remember it well uh intersection lineup departed in wrong direction <laughs> yeah Whoops. okay here we go you ready Let's do it. Hang on, let me Let's put my, my seatbelt on here. There okay, put your seatbelt on fast. You know, make sure it's all nice and snug because we're going to talk about a crazy incident here. An Air Arabia Airbus A320-200 registration Alpha 6, Alpha November Victor performing flight 111 from Sharjah, United Arab Emirates to Salalah, Salalah, Oman with 42 passengers and six crew, was taxiing for departure from Sharjah's running runway 30. The aircraft entered the runway for an intersection departure from, runway, uh, from taxiway B-14 and turned into direction runway 12, which is the the wrong way to turn the opposite direction. Uh, details, the details. Yeah, the takeoff. It's, yeah, it's still the same runway, just the wrong direction. It's the wrong direction. Uh, Oman is that way, anyways. He just he just wanted to get there. <laughs> okay, yeah, I can understand that. Uh, takeoff distance available from B fourteen and runway one two was one thousand twenty meters, which is thirty three hundred and fifty feet, instead of three thousand and ten meters or ninety nine hundred nine thousand nine hundred feet. Yeah, including the paved runway and safety area, a paved surface of 3,760 feet was available in direction of runway 12. The crew commenced takeoff. 3,760 feet or 1,150 meters is like a general aviation airport yeah. runway. Okay. You're talking you're talking Bonanza territory here. Right. We're not talking Airbus A320 kind of runway. Which kind of is. I'm just kidding. It's not. <laughs> The crew commenced takeoff from intersection B-14 along direction runway 12, managed to become airborne in time to avoid any obstacles, climbed out to safety, and continued to Salala for a landing without further incident. On September 19th, Air Arabia instructed their pilots that all intersection departures were banned with immediate effect after one of their flights took off from the... Uh, I guess that'll fix it. Yeah, that's that. Well, then I won't. Well, yeah. I'll just text to the other end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, this is a this is interesting. Both pilots had been suspended uh, pending the investigation. Well, this is common. Well, I'm that's what happens. Surprised. That's, uh, yeah, that always it's what always happens. If there's some kind of an investigation, you're going to be suspended or taken off the schedule. Um. Okay. Uh, on January 10th, 2022, the GCAA released their final report. 
And let's see, determines the cause of the runway confusion was the co-pilot steering the aircraft right onto the wrong runway during a rolling takeoff. Duh. Uh, entry to the wrong runway was due to degraded situation awareness of the aircraft direction by both flight crew members due to lack of external peripheral visual watch and runway confirmation. What? That's just a bunch of gobbledygook. They weren't looking around. Yeah, they weren't looking outside or something or didn't have any idea where they're – well, I don't want to use profane language. Um, Let's see. A contributing factor to the incident was that the air traffic controller did not monitor the aircraft movement after takeoff clearance was given. Okay, so the first officer was under training, 34 years old. He has a – what's it? Multi – Multi-crew pilot license, I think, MPL, that's what that stands for. Um, 159 hours. 159 hours total. Now, those of you listening here (laughs) uh, who are um, general aviation pilots, I mean, I think that a lot of the people listening that have private certificates probably have more than 159 hours. But that's just the way things work sometimes. sure does. Yeah, Stephanie definitely has more than that. Um, okay, so he was occupying the right, right-hand right seat. He was the pilot flying. The training captain had a lot of hours, 22,184 hours, 15,536 hours on type. Wow. He's a very experienced captain. Um, so Tower gave clearance for an intersection takeoff. We already covered this. So they, they turned the wrong way. Uh, they started the takeoff roll. The co-pilot called out that the runway was not showing on the flight mode enunciation, the FMA, well, after no the sh- thrust levers were moved to the flex slash MCT detent. Okay, that should have been a red flag. Um, as the aircraft accelerated through 57 knots, okay, we're still in the low-speed realm here, right? You know, we can... That's like yep. hardly anything to stop the airplane, right, at 57 knots. Well, the co- yeah, the auto brakes won't even come on at 57 knots. Yeah, so this is like you're still in a very safe zone at this point. Uh, the commander realized that the aircraft was on the wrong runway. It's on the right runway. It's going the wrong way. And immediately took over control. His decision to continue the takeoff hmm, was based on his perception that there was insufficient available runway for rejecting the takeoff. Again, I think that everybody will here will agree that you're not really you're not really going that fast at this point. Probably plenty of runway to stop. Anyway, the commander advanced the thrust levers to toga, and nine seconds later, changed the aircraft flap setting from one plus F to flap two position. The aircraft lifted off twenty to forty meters beyond the end of runway one two. The number three main wheel tire received cuts when it struck one approach light during the liftoff. The tower controller did not detect the aircraft had turned onto runway 12 and only noticed when the aircraft was about eight seconds before liftoff. The commander handed over controls to the co-pilot and the flight continued uneventfully to the planned destination. Okay, and I, I don't know if this is the right place to mention this but i was kind of curious about i think i'd seen a comment by somebody saying well what responsibility does the tower I asked you oh liz uh, asked me uh you know what responsibility does the air traffic controller have in this incident and 
I'm thinking, well, I, I think that most of the blame goes to the, the pilots, but I'm not sure uh, about that question. So I reached out to um, an unnamed air traffic controller who uh, I, is in a good friend of mine location. in an unknown, unknown location. <laughs> and <laughs> he says, uh, so I, I, I gave him a link to this whole thing. And he goes, wow, two sides to this one. The flying pilot would barely have an instrument rating in the U.S. And he's flying an Airbus. What could go wrong? The captain, the captain shouldn't have to be a babysitter. 157 hours? That's oh, unbelievable. Uh, that's, I'm sorry. That's exactly what he has to be at that point. Yeah. Because this guy is very much under training. So being a babysitter is actually his primary job. Yeah, that's sorry, true. Sorry, Jeff, carry on. No, no, no. You're right. You're right, Nick. Uh, the controller. And, and, and just, I, just, I just want to make sure here. I mean, I'm, we're not we're not bashing low-time pilots. The, no. You know, some countries have, uh, you know, uh cadet programs where yeah. after you go through sim training and all that uh you are put on the right seat of uh, whatever aircraft the airline has um but that doesn't take away the fact that you are indeed a inexperienced pilot and when you come from ga again your ratings there where things you know when you're basically flying um you know about a mile a minute to an airplane where you you're covering eight and a half to nine miles per minute, um, you know, things happen a little quicker, and so you need yep. to be ahead. and And this is not something that you are taught on the ground. So yeah, again, we're not disparaging no. low time pilots. It's just not it's at just, all. Um, that, yeah, you you that's are. The, that, that's the way the system okay. is over there, and that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Back to what RH said. So um, the unnamed controller from an un. Unknown location. Unknown location, thank you. Says the controller side, it's absolutely part of our responsibility to ensure that the aircraft turns the right way from an intersection. We've had these opposite direction departures before, and while it's the pilot's fault, we can't claim we didn't have an important role in scanning the environment and ensuring the pilot turned the right way. That being said, I would be much more likely to watch a Skyhawk, a Cessna 172, a GA airplane, before I worried about an air carrier making that mistake. He says, hope this yeah, helps. Yeah, good point. Yeah. And having realized the guy had made the mistake, what's the controller going to do? Is he going to tell him to stop or is he going to tell him to go? I mean, how, how do you approach the situation? Because if you make the wrong call... Of the commander might make the wrong decision. Well, yeah. we all, I think, agree the commander made the wrong decision anyway. So, mm -hmm. probably a call in this case would have helped him make the right decision, perhaps. Perhaps. But if you interrupt at the wrong moment, you might cause indecision, which could be vital seconds lost and safety is yet further eroded. Yep. Absolutely right. Now, as as um, and and then again, this this goes back to to you know. Different airlines and S and SOPs, standard operating procedures, and 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 before takeoff procedures and all that. And uh, um, both airlines I've worked at, and um, as part of the pre-takeoff or pre-departure uh, uh, portion of the flight, we go through what's called a pre-departure briefing, which is basically a, a mini briefing. Um, things that deal specifically with departure runway, um, uh, initial heading, uh, initial altitude. And um, uh, engine out procedure. Um, once you are at the whole short port of the runway, you verify uh, the runway that's 
on your navigation display is in fact the runway that you see out the window. Um, and then once that is the case, then you you, you take the runway uh, and go. Um, one thing that is interesting to me here is that apparently this 157-hour aviator um, is not um, was not aware of uh, runway markings um, because if you make a right turn on uh, taxiway Bravo 14, uh, you are going to find yourself staring straight at a runway distance marking. Um, Wait, and- are you sure? Wait a minute. Hang on. I'm not sure that they have runway. Do they have the runway distance remaining markers there on that runway? I'm talking about no. I'm talking about the the touchdown zone, the touchdown. Uh, oh, the I see. Okay, that, that designate not, the touchdown zones, not the runway distance. Not the, not, not, no, it. not okay. the distance remaining, but the, gotcha. the touchdown zone markers. Okay. And so you get you, you know the, those touchdown zone markers go up to you know the, the touchdown zone of the runway is yeah, okay. three thousand feet, and so if you're looking at your window and you're looking at these white blocks on the ground, you're going, huh? I have three thousand feet or less runway to get this thing off the ground. At mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't sound right. Look and, right. and you mentioned earlier, Rick, and I think this happened at night, didn't it? Did it happen at night? I don't I don't know. I was going to say those runway, you know, the, the different colored lighting that you talked about on the previous incident would be something. I, I'm quickly sc- scrolling here to see when exactly this happened. Um, does it say what time it was? No, I'm looking here. I don't think it. Does you know how the uh, how they usually have the the weather uh, yeah. the app of the weather? Uh, I can't see yeah, that. Uh, uh, there is a report here. Let, let me pull up the final report. See if I can see that Aviation Herald. But no, that's the actual Av Herald thing. Um. Hmm. Well, go on and talk what you were talking about, and I will yeah. see if I can yeah, find just it. Yeah, basically, I was, I was, I was saying there while, while, while Jeff is is figuring that out there. Um, you just look out the window, and uh, whether it's daytime or nighttime, um, you are going to have uh, visual cues of your position along that runway. And uh, as we talked about in the in the, the last uh, segment, there, um, runways the, the way they are lit at night. Um, give you a very, very clear uh, indication, clear idea of where you are along that runway. Um, once you get to the last 3,000 feet of usable runway, the centerline lights are going to start to alternate between white, which is the normal color lighting for runway markings, uh, between uh, white and red. And that is going to alternate until the last 1,000 feet of runway, uh, where the last 1,000 feet of centerline lights are all going to be red uh, same thing with the runway lights uh, the edge lights uh, the last 2,000 feet of runway uh, the runway edge lights are not are no longer going to be white but they're going to be yellow so next time you land at night and you taxi off the runway if you happen to be on a, on a window seat and you taxi off the uh, end of the runway there you're gonna you know just pay attention and you'll see that and that's going to give you an idea of how much runway uh, the, the was left uh, before the your aircraft taxied off the runway there. So yeah, just look out the window and if it, things don't make sense, then question. And if, uh, if it, if all it takes really is to stop and set the brakes and see what happened um, and, you know, just relocate and just, you know, reevaluate and, <laughs> and, and, and go to the correct end of the runway. And that's what, that's what you yeah. have to do. 
I'm just going to put a point in here as a matter of instructional technique. Now, the the guy was um, demonstrating or allowing the his first officer to have a go at a rolling takeoff. That was a requirement. So it's a training trip, and the guy mm. is training this aspect. Now, because you know during a rolling takeoff, you have to have really everything complete. You can't be still doing checks uh, while you're trying to do a rolling takeoff because you're concentrating on lining the airplane up going straight off. Everything has to have been done quite early. The guy, and he had about a three-minute taxi, and he decided to uh, uh, let the first officer do a single-engine taxi out. Mm-hmm. Now, to, for me, that initial decision of letting the guy do a short taxi on one engine, which then required the second engine to be started during the taxi out, all the checks then completed, pre-takeoff checks, uh, and get it all done and dusted in enough time to mini rebrief what we're about to do okay blogs remember we're about to do a rolling takeoff here so this is the technique and then let the cockpit go quiet while he lines the airplane up and everyone's watching what's happening thinking about the technique etc etc uh he didn't really set up any of that he allowed the workload to build during the taxi out to the point where I think he himself was probably working very hard. trying to overwhelmed. Yeah, trying to keep uh, everything going so that they could, in effect, have the spare capacity to do this roller takeoff. Um, If he thought back a little bit and set this up right, it may may well not have happened because they both would have been much more relaxed approaching the runway and had time to look at everything and they go, hang on a minute, you're turning the wrong way, son. Or perhaps, <laughs> you know, yeah. And then they could have fixed it there and then. But uh, that's just one point. Having got himself to the point where this dreadful mistake, he didn't really think ahead at all. He's in, effectively taking off into the landing stream. What the, yeah, having realized he's going off the wrong way to have persisted with the takeoff, I'm just, Bemused by that and just, completely. And, was and, he trying and, to make up for the error and get try and get away with it somehow? I just don't understand that I, I, at all. You know, and, and it's, and it's interesting how you, you see. I mean, and I agree with you 100% there, Nick. I mean, 57 knots is it's not a high-energy situation by any stretch of the imagination. No, and it um, took him a while to get to 57 knots. You yeah, know? Mm-hmm. yeah, exactly right. And, and he, just, He's just, taking control. Just keep in mind that that when you when you taxi off an active runway on a high speed exit, those are designed for what sixty knots. You taxi off of those about sixty knots, no thirty. Yeah, knots. It, unfortunately, it wasn't one of those high speed exits where mm. the whole exit is angled. Exactly. It actually comes on at ninety degrees and just has a bit of a, a, a extra curve on one side to the other. So it it's not. Uh, it, I don't think it was completely obvious immediately yeah. that. Because it, it's a ninety degree taxi on. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I was what I was thinking about was yeah, high high speed uh, high speed taxi off is about thirty knots, and the taxiway itself is sixty degrees. Uh, if, yeah. uh, if yeah. I believe. The other thing is, um, and and Al, I agree with you one hundred percent. Captain Al says here that uh, that uh, the captain allowed himself to become tass- saturated. Absolutely right, and it goes back to goes back to not letting yourself be rushed ever. Um, and, How's Al um, doing? Because clearly, clearly, you, you can see how as the situation progresses, you can just see just how how this how this captain is, you know, you know, effectively just. I thought so. Yeah. The rope around his neck himself, um, not giving. Oh yeah. Time, you know? Yeah. And another he, he's thing, slapping sticking plasters. 
on an open wound uh, trying to make it better. It ain't going to get better. Exactly right. <laughs> we, we need a lot of surgery here. Yeah, and, and, and the other thing, I know a lot of airlines, and my airline does as well, they, you know, they, they have this whole deal where they do single-engine taxi. And that's great, you know, um, but um, the, the actual starting of an engine is a very – not not complicated procedure, especially uh, in, in newer type airplanes where all you really do is just select the the, the engine start switch and put the auto the uh, the uh, fuel control switch to on. It does the auto start and all that. But in airplanes, and I believe that's the case with with Airbuses, where you just go to you know crank or start or whatever it is, and you just put the the the. Oh engine. yeah, it it is very simple. No, the the problem is the timing of the checks. You there's not there's a lot of checks you can't do until you got both engines started. Yeah, and that's where the time compression. You've now got a big checklist to get through before you get to the end of the runway. Exactly right. And there's also parameters, certain engine parameters that need to be, you know, as far as, as, as oil, you know, oil temperatures, oil pressures, all these things. Oh, yeah. You've yeah, got and, to hit and, the warm-up time. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. So, I, you know, with when it comes to single-engine taxi, I'm like, nope, yeah, just uh, no, no, I don't, I don't care. It's, you know, let's just burn the dinosaurs. I will just start both the earth at the, at the, at the blocks and just one less thing to worry about because if there's one thing that I cannot stand, and, and I think I've mentioned it a couple of times this episode, is when people rush me. I do not like to be rushed. I don't like to be in a hurry because when you hurry is when you make mistakes. You're right. Yeah. So this, this very simplistic uh, cause here, um, the – Entering the wrong runway was due to degraded situational awareness. Yeah, right. Okay. So degraded, they turned the wrong way by both crew members due to a lack of external peripheral visual watch. They weren't looking where they were going. Um, that is a very simplistic uh, cause. I need to hear a lot more about why they had this cognitive failure so that people can arm themselves certain prevent themselves from doing something as simple as this and screwing up. So now Nick, what do you expect to see when you select either Flex or Toga on a normal takeoff? Because what if what what def, differs between Boeing pilots and Airbus pilots um on during the takeoff procedure itself is that what I've seen Airbus pilots do is they do a they read a whole list of things like a laundry list of whatever it is they're going to go get and you know at, at the market once, once they land because it's, it's a very long list of things that they're looking at. Oh, they're just reading what, what off of those? the the FMA indications. So uh, it'll be uh, man toga or man flex with the temperature, the flex temperature. So that's the threat power setting. Runway indicates your on the runway and that's the phase of flight you're in and then whatever the last one is i can't remember oh and there's also um you know, the order trustees should be armed SRS, um, like that uh yeah yes srs is going to be the pitch guidance for your rotate and shortly after takeoff um so yeah and and it but it's a phrase we always read and that read that off and it becomes um you know something you're used to saying so if you don't see something there should be an immediate question mark why isn't the runway in fact the first officer said uh, there's no runway i've mm -hmm. got runway that was the first uh, indicate, indication yeah. yeah indicating there's something wrong with the, the airplane doesn't think we're at a suitable place to take off mm -hmm. so yes. listen to the airplane that's and by the way thing. we did check and uh, finally figured out that it was like 1220z which would mean uh, sometime probably in the afternoon so this was yeah, not right. at night. This was during the day. Okay. 
Yeah, so you wonder how you can make such a massive cognitive failure uh, with all those visual cues available to you in daylight. Uh, leaves me a bit like the previous one, a little bit gobsmacked. Yeah, yeah, Daniel is making a good point. Luckily, the desert is flat. Absolutely. Except well, when it's not. For but yeah, well, yeah, except when it's not. <laughs> <laughs> I've fl- fl- flown over some deserts that aren't flat at all, but oh. I know where you're coming from. Yeah, okay. I Maybe. do know <laughs> well, where you're coming from. <laughs> Never mind then. <laughs> okay, well. the uh, Okay, like, so. Yeah, yeah the, so that was like, okay, so. So far, two of our news items are like, what? <laughs> what, yeah. what are they doing? We're already at the hour point, and we're now on item number three. And this one, <laughs> I wish I could say I understand as well, but uh, let's talk about it. Um, this is a final report. This happened in 2019, September of 2019, September 11th. Um, Two Ryanair Boeing 737-800s at Malaga, Malaga, uh, Spain, Malaga, uh, performing, let's see, one was Flight 98-93, and the other was 40-58, and uh, they were both full of passengers, 190 and 179, respectfully, respectively is the word. Thank you, Jeff. Um, So... A um, the first one, the uh, flight ninety eight ninety three was commencing takeoff on Malaga's runway one three, and uh, the second one was uh, coming in uh, on final approach for runway one three, and cleared to land. The landing aircraft touched down on runway one three before the departing aircraft became airborne. Spain's CIAIAC commented on the very fact the sequence of events outlined above led to a loss of separation, and given that both aircraft were on the runway at the same time, a runway incursion. Uh, The final report concluded that the probable causes of the incident were the investigation has determined the incident occurred because an aircraft was given clearance to land on a runway that was occupied by another aircraft in the process of taking off without respecting the regulatory distances. Uh, deficient planning by the air traffic controller who took advantage of a gap between two landings to authorize a takeoff is considered to have been a contributing factor. Furthermore, given the immediate danger posed by the loss of regulatory separation, the absence of decision-making to cancel the takeoff, for example, by the air traffic controller is also deemed to have been a factor. So here we go. Uh, The airplane on the ground notified no excuse me the uh, airplane in the air coming in on approach notified air traffic control that they were proceeding to 500 feet so 500 feet above the ground air traffic control responded instructing that's inside of, that's inside of two miles by the way yeah yeah 300 feet per mile right mm-hmm. okay instructing it yeah, to continue that's, that's pretty tight <laughs> you know, and wait await <laughs> a late landing clearance okay at that moment the other Ryanair was established. Wait a minute. Hang on. I'm reading this wrong. Which one was on the ground and which one? Okay. No, he, this is the one still in the air. Um, they were established on final at 1.7 nautical miles, as Rick mentioned, inside of two miles from the threshold. 
The other airplane on the ground was taxiing towards runway 13. The air traffic controller did not recognize the imminent danger resulting from the loss of separation and continue with the initial plan. Yeah, go with that initial plan. Instructing the aircraft to continue on approach without informing the aircraft that was about to take off. Given that the inbound aircraft was 1.7 nautical miles from the runway threshold and the outbound aircraft was midway between the holding point and the runway threshold, the air traffic controller could have prevented a loss of separation and therefore a potentially hazardous situation between the inbound and outbound traffic in a single runway configuration by instructing the air arriving traffic to abort its approach and canceling the takeoff of the taxiing aircraft. He could always go around. Yep, you could always go around, Liz says. However... The local tower controller cleared the aircraft on final to land with the preceding traffic in view on runway 13 when it was established at 200 feet above the ground. Uh, was on its ta- So that other airplane was on takeoff run uh, at a speed of 90 knots. The distance between the two aircraft was 0.4 nautical miles. That's not a lot. The landing was authorized when the aircraft was practically above the runway threshold, allowing it to cross said threshold while the outbound aircraft was still on the runway. Moreover, there was no degree of assurance that the regulatory separation could be maintained as the aircraft on approach was traveling faster yeah, than the aircraft on takeoff, increasingly reducing the separation between the aircraft. The air traffic controller failed to anticipate required separation. Uh, the landing aircraft touched down on the runway with a ground speed of 141. The other one was, at that point was about 157 knots. Uh, the distance was 0.28 nautical miles, so less than a third of a nautical mile when they were both on the runway. So, so I, got a, uh, I got a couple of things on this. Yeah, for you. go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry, Jeff. I, 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 no, I, jump yeah. in. No, I was going to say, uh, let's thank the Lord that uh, the takeoff uh, wasn't rejected one. Yes. That's the biggie. Um, The other one um, as part of the before takeoff checklist. And I know this is Boeing wide. um, One of the items that you check is your TCAS and your TCAS status traffic collision avoidance system. Once you set that TCAS selector, which is going to be on your transponder panel there to T-A-R-A, traffic advisory, resolution advisory, you're going to get real-time information of aircraft around you, um, both Mm -hmm. on the lateral axis and the vertical axis. One of the things that I look at, um, and we all look at as professional piles that we are, I'm sure we all do, is um, before taking off, before taking the runway, uh, you're obviously going to look at your window to see if it's in fact clear, because there are aircraft out there that do not operate with a transponder. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, you're going to look down at your navigation display or EHSI, whatever type of setup you happen to have, and see whether or not there's a target in there and see what altitude uh, it's read, it reads and, and how far away it is from the runway. That's on, on, uh, as far as um, aircraft on the ground. On the approaching aircraft, on the approaching aircraft, um, you also have your transponder and TARA, right? Um, and so you can see aircraft that are on the runway, actively on the runway. And you could um, use your eyeballs and see and the. Can, and, and yeah, well, it, you know, obviously, if, if you are if you're flying VMC, um, and then yeah, you can just look out the, the window and, mm-hmm. and use the Mark One eyeball and just you know do that. Um, the captain of both aircraft, both flights, could have you know the one on the on the ground could have just said, you know what, we're just going to hold off here and we're going to wait until that airplane lands 
and deconflicted that way. And the captain of the approaching aircraft could have very well have requested or just said, you know what, we're just going to go around because this is just not going to work. Exactly. And so it uh, it's many things going on here at the same time. Now, I understand how a go-around at low altitude is a tricky situation, especially when you have an airplane ahead of you, in front of you, because at that point you find yourself having to deconflict that situation, mm-hmm. dealing with, you know, traffic uh, resolu- resolution advisories and then the traffic controller saying one thing the resolution advisor saying another thing and then you know where do you go and then you have a high energy situation then you have a 157 hour guy sitting on your right so it's you know it's, it's a very very high um high stress very dynamic situation so so yes it's but but these things these things you can you can see these things happening and 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 that and and getting to the point where you don't want them to get and that's Whereas Captain Jeff, uh, Jeff says, you use your, your your pilot brain and stop it. Cut the chain there. Right. And you can't rely upon the air traffic controller to get everything right. And The air traffic controller is fallible. It makes mistakes yeah. as well, just as we do. So don't expect them to have all the answers. Right. Um, so... That's yeah. what I had to say. Coming so. in, you know, you and not only do you use your eyeballs, your or your TCAS, and then if you can, if it's visual, you use your eyeballs, and you also use your ears. You listen to transmissions on the radio frequencies that may not actually be directed toward you. You still have to listen to all these conversations on the radio so that you can build this mental picture of what's going on. And I don't know how the airplane on final approach could look at the situation. And and kind of think that this is going to work out. I mean, how yep. how in the world? I mean, just like that incident in Reno, with the Delta and Southwest incident. Mm-hmm. You know, when the Delta pilot said, "How's this going to work?" You know, like you could just see this is not going to work. Um, and then you just make the decision. You don't wait for the air traffic controller to tell no, you to go ex- around. You exactly. say, "Hey, look, I'm going to go around." And not only that, I'm going to go and I'm going to offset a little bit so that I can, uh, knowing that this airplane is on takeoff roll and he's going to be flying into the airspace. That if I go straight ahead without getting some kind of an offset, is going to go fly right into me. So I'm going to go off to the right or to the left or whatever the situation, you know, whatever the best solution to that situation so i can keep my eye on that airplane that's down there on the runway and about to lift off so we don't hit each other uh i just wow i mm. and then but you can't let the guy on the uh the flight on the on the ground off the hook either as you said rick one of the things i think that we all do is before we take a runway in you know line up and wait or clear for takeoff you look out there you look at your tcas and you say finals clear Okay, we're gonna we're gonna take the runway. You know, final is clear. I or say. the groove is clear if you're flying with a navy guy like it was the other day. The groove. groove? Is clear. Yeah. Okay, I've That's never heard that. What they call final on a carrier. Groove. Okay, but anyway, yeah, so. it's just like so. There are so many people's. I mean, both both air, uh, flights pilots and the air traffic controller. Everybody. I think I see some blame here for for everybody. In this situation. Absolutely right. I agree. And remember, remember, fellas uh, and ladies, um, the us, uh, the one, the ones that are actually flying the aircraft. Uh, ATC is there to, to help us to give us a big picture type thing, you know, uh, for for situational awareness and to guide us and all that. But at the end of the day, these fine gentlemen and and ladies, 
do provide a service and they're in, in essence, you know, working for us. So it's not like what they say is the law. We have to put that through a filter. And if it's a bad command or a bad, you know, piece of guidance or information, we are as pilots in command ourselves, we are in our you know, right to just decline and say, nope, we're not going to do that. I just I can't or, you know, or, or just do something else and then explain. So, um, yeah, just, uh, don't, don't, don't take these kinds of commands, you know, just blindly just cause you think it's going to work. Yep. Nigel in our live audience, uh, basically nails it. The first three news items that we're covering here, three lapses of basic airmanship. This has been really good. I've enjoyed this a lot. Well, Hey, <laughs> let's have some, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a, an audible here. I'm going to, that wasn't me being audible. That was, I don't know what that was. <laughs> Somebody let, Who the, let dogs the dogs out. out. Who let the dogs out? Um, let's see. I, I, was that the hydraulic system on a, a single engine taxi on an Airbus? Uh, the three the Airbuses. Oh, three. Airbuses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm going to skip. We can go back to it if you guys want, but I want to, uh, because I just can't wait to talk about this one. Gee, <laughs> uh, yes. How did you know, Liz? Yeah. I knew it. Okay. Um, so this is a, um, a video that I'm going to share with you all. And let's see, let's see what we think about this one. American uh, 58 Gate 157 occupied. Taxi Hotel, hold for the taxiway, Quebec, this frequency. Hotel, Hotel, Quebec, this frequency, American uh, 58. Okay. Uh, they crossed the hold short bar. American 58, I didn't. I wanted you short of Quebec on hotel, so uh, I want you to go back to the left now on hotel, and then just go to the end at Bravo 17, hold short of runway 25 right. Would have done it if you would have said it. Say again. Said we would have done that if you would have said it. He did. What did I give you? No, I'm just saying we would have held short of the if you would have told us asked to do so. Okay, what did I issue you before? Uh, hold short of Quebec. Alaska 705, RNF Docker, runway 25 right, clear for takeoff. RNF Docker, 25 right, clear for takeoff, Alaska 705. American 58, okay, yeah, I gave you short of uh, Quebec before. What What are you doing now? Doesn't look like short of Quebec to me. <laughs> did, did you want us to go to the end? Yeah, now I do, now that you messed up the last instruction. Let's try to get this one right. Go to Bravo 17, hold short of runway 25 right. No, I didn't mess it up, you did. No. Oh. Go fifty nine forty four at Juliet Cross runway two five right in contact ground point seven five. At Juliet Cross two five right, Midgrass tonight. United seven oh six at Juliet Cross runway two five right in contact ground point seven five. At Juliet Cross two five right and then over to ground point seven five. Have a great night, United seven oh six. You too, man. Alaska seven oh five contact departure. Departure Alaska seven oh five. Have a good night. Guys are sucking up. All the other pilots are gone. Yeah, they know what happened. Yeah, they're being very nice to the yes. controller. <laughs> you know what? You know what they're doing, right? They're they're putting tower frequency on number two and then flipping over just to after on the climb out just to keep listening to what's going yeah, on. Yeah, to hear what's going on. So okay, th I think that's that's enough of of that. Um, so I we've all met people like this, right? That they make a mistake. And then all of a sudden they start yelling at you 
who has not made a mistake, but they're, what is that called? Deflecting? Right. Fighters. Projecting, I think. Or projecting or deflecting or whatever. And what's just, I, I can't understand exactly, you know, so he tells them to hold short of Quebec. They don't hold short of Quebec. They hold short of the runway. I think in their mind, they're thinking what he really wants me to do is hold short of two five right, the runway they're using for takeoff on Quebec. But he did not say that. He said hold short of Quebec. And then when he said, "Okay, what did I say?" and then he basically said, "You told me to hold short of Quebec." How how is yeah. it that the controller was wrong? I mean, obviously, I mean it was clearly the pilot. The, they they did that wrong, but in these kind of situations, if if it were me in that airplane and I screwed up, or yeah. maybe I think I may have screwed up, or whatever, I would get on there and say, "Well, I'm sorry. I, I guess I misunderstood what you wanted us to do. Uh, what would you like us to do now?" We wouldn't be talking about this right now if that exactly. was the exactly response. Right. Yep. And yeah. it's just like wow. I mean, it's like a like a, a, a alternate reality that this pilot was in. I think. I think. I mean, I really truly believe he thought that the controller had screwed up, not him. Were there two different voices? Did the guy who read back the air traffickers' uh, instructions was he a different voice to the one that no. was really snippy? No, I think it was the I same. Him, no, I think really, it, was. it sounded okay. the same yeah. to me. Yeah, all right, yeah, fair me enough. Too. Uh, I, I, all I you like, Americans sound the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> all cowboys. Well, yeah, yeah, a bunch of cowboys, right? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> yeah. Yeehaw! Well, this okay. guy certainly was, yeah. Yeah, no, my, my favorite part is, you know, gives him the other commands, like, let's see if we can get this one right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he Ouch. pissed the controller off. Yeah, I, yeah I thought the controller was surprisingly calm about it, he quite was. honestly. He really was. Yeah. Really yeah. Was. I'd, have, I'd have just yeah. had that telephone number right on already. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and as, right. as we said, you know, the, all the other transmissions from all the other flights, you could tell that they were all going like, yeah, uh, hey, dude, man, like, you, yep. you screwed up. The controller told you to do something. You didn't do it. And we're going to be real pleasant. Yeah, to we're going to be very, very pleasant to the controller and make sure we yeah, don't get like, upset. Him. That, guy, that guy's a D. Just Yeah. You know, yeah. I, so, I, you know, I wonder if somebody, hey, if they had uh, had the opportunity to, you know, to listen to this in, in hindsight and say, oh, yeah, Those people don't that, have uh, that probably wasn't the way that I was, should have done that. And yeah. I shouldn't well, you and so I, snippy. and Rick might have, Jeff, but I wonder if this pilot is, or the, uh, has the sort Not of personality capable. type that allows him to do that. Yeah, could be. <laughs> to go back and examine his mistakes. And, yeah reflect on them that's true yeah there there are some uh, fortunately the minority that uh, would yeah. be that way i think and but they like, make great listening on the internet that's right i'm glad that he did this because that way we can talk <laughs> about it on our show <laughs> absolutely uh, oh anyway um i thought that was interesting we're gonna move on um, to know you now i don't know what do you think liz do do we want to like well, it's, uh, it's up to you it's up to you if you want to just i news or? think oh, let's just hit, let's hit the fedex one just because i'd like okay. to hear yep, um rick's uh perspective okay. since we have him here with us and he flies this kind of uh air emissions notices to air emissions oh god don't get me started uh, okay uh, this was sent in by robert thompson and sean McHale. Uh, let's see. Well, let's see. Robert said, or somebody, uh, not sure what to think of, of this one is hauling boxes really that bad. So anyway, so what are they talking about here? This is, uh, an article oh. regarding 
FedEx proposal or proposing an anti-missile or missile lasers for some planes. This technology was previously tested in some cargo jets in 2008. Okay, so package delivery giant FedEx wants to equip some aircraft with military-style missile countermeasures, which could allow it to continue flying over contested areas that might otherwise be closed to air traffic, according to a filing posted by the FAA. In a notice of this special condition posted Friday, the FAA dryly observed that its design standards for commercial cargo planes did not envisage uh, in, uh, that uh, a design feature could protect infrared laser energy outside the airplane. Therefore, it sought special approval for this novel design feature. The proposed infrared laser system is intended to fool missiles fired from the ground. In recent years, several incidents abroad, civilian aircraft were fired upon by man-portable air defense systems, or man-pads, the FAA said in its filing. The FedEx missile defense system directs infrared laser energy toward an incoming missile in an effort to interrupt the missile's tracking of the aircraft's heat. This is just coincidentally um, very similar to the plane tales that you've been doing um, uh, part two uh, today. Nick? Yeah, I haven't uh, really looked at uh, countermeasures, but uh, okay. yeah, they're, they're, this is just one of uh, one of the more um, up-to-date uh, countermeasure methods for infrared missiles. Yeah. So I'm looking at this thinking, really? I mean, I, I hadn't thought that things were that bad. And then before the show, uh, Rick and I were talking about this and he said, yeah, um, this, you know, we fly freighters into parts of the world that are not... Um, not as safe as some other parts. Not the friendliest. Yeah. 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 Well, no, we, uh, we know that you've been operating quite a lot in the past into Afghanistan and places, Rick, uh, mm-hmm. and where you've had to employ some novel approach and departure um, methods, I yeah. gather. Call them, uh, call them less than standard, but they, yes. <laughs> get you, um, they get you in there and out of there safe. This is back in my seven, four days and. uh Cheers to my fellow aviators that still do that kind of flying. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's this is no joke. I mean, these these some of these places are are, are indeed very very hostile. Uh, and so um, I was talking to Jeff before we started here. Some of the things we used to do going in there is um, uh, the majority of the time we would fly in there at night um, under cover of darkness, um, obviously, and no lights on, no navigation lights, no. Uh, strobe lights, nothing. Um, and you'd basically have uh, the controller bring you kind of overhead the field, and you would do this this spiraling descent over a protected area, um, and then uh, land that way. Um, it was once you got into it, once you got inside the protected perimeter of the of the uh, of the airport, it was really up to you if you wanted the landing lights on or not. Uh, but by that point, your night vision uh, was pretty, you know. Uh, accustomed to the light conditions so i i usually always just land it with the lights off um some guys opted to turn them on but i I would just just keep them off and then the same thing with taking off um you would um do a very 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 steep climb out of there obviously on the 74 we used to even even if you were light um uh so the takeoff flaps in for the 74 was you know either flap 10 or flap 20 flap 20 if, if was usually what you use because you obviously take off um, relatively heavy uh, for a light takeoff. You'd only use flap ten, uh, but uh, in these cases, you would certainly opt for a flap twenty takeoff. And um, 
uh, you would uh, do uh, very close to what's called an NADP-1 uh, noise abatement departure procedure, but not because of the noise of the engines over the ground. It's just the noise of you blowing up if somebody <laughs> hits you. So, uh, so uh, you just uh, so being so kind and considerate to the uh, neighbors around yes, the, uh, yes, around yes, the yes, airport. Yes, yes, but it, it, in reality, it's a, it's a way of uh, getting a lot of height with very few track miles flown. Yes, Rick? Yes, I, I, I do believe that's how that works. So you're, you're so, trying to climb out of the missile envelope yeah, as quickly as possible. Trying to get out yeah. of Dodge as quickly as possible. So um, yeah. so that's kind of how we did it. Um, and so I understand how. And, you know, just go back to some of the newsreels back in, uh, I think it was 07, 08. I'm sure someone's going to correct us. Uh, a, an A300 was was actually shot at and hit by a uh, by a missile, and they were able to land it uh, with basically no hydraulics um, in one of these uh, fields. And oh, the and, and a wing on fire. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes. Um, so uh, I did a plane tail on that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Not, it might have been the 300th. I'm not yeah. sure. Certainly around there. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, good, good on them for for doing this. I know they've been getting a lot of flack on the. On the interwebs, all the memes coming out, uh, making what? fun of this. Uh, I no. know people have talked for this, right? I know, I know. But uh, I, I, I do agree that uh, you know, some sometimes, especially after our little, you know, the way we exited that part of the world not uh, not too long ago, and all the stuff that was left behind, I see that uh, it would. Uh, uh, a lot of these stockpiles may have been uh, replenished with our our, uh, and, and that be pose um, a, a risk so good good on them for doing that although i've never seen fedex flying in afghanistan i've seen them in india i've seen them in where else have i seen them obviously europe all over the place the, you know, the asia and all that but i don't i don't believe in the middle east i believe i've seen them in the middle east uh, you know uae that type of stuff but i actually i don't i've never seen them in in uh in afghanistan or any of those places uh i don't know but again yeah, if you can well, afford it uh, th- you can you can apply it and do it there certainly are places where the threats are higher than others. I and mean, for heaven's sake, we used to go into Nairobi and there was still an approach there because we went over terrain where it was high enough for someone to poop off a missile and there was considered a still a chance that um, uh, a, a group could fire it airliners coming in so we used to avoid that terrain because uh, it was safer to do anything else uh so that was a very benign threat i personally think but there are areas where it's definitely not um and i can understand why if you've got a contract or want to get a contract to go into those places you'd want to equip uh, your aircraft and keep your crews safe i think that's a damn good idea personally um having said that the bombing i didn't quite understand about it was it would allow uh the airline presumably or the cargo outfit to continue flying over contested areas that might otherwise be closed to air traffic that's an interesting one i i kind of immediately thought um remember the malaysian uh aircraft that was blown out of the sky Clearly. by a russian missile Absolutely, uh, and I was thinking, oh well, th- then perhaps they're just doing it so they can don't have to go around possible war zones. They can just go straight over the top. But yeah. this technology yeah. would not help them there because the, they're flying too high. Um, the uh, ground um, man portable 
missile would get that high. And anyway, uh, infrared was not the system used. You wouldn't be firing at an infrared missile up at an airliner 37,000 feet in the air. It's going to be radar guided and this won't be of any use to them whatsoever. So I was thinking, oh, it's, it must be for landing uh, in airfields where you've got a contract to supply the military and there is a threat. So I, I think it's not a bad idea. I'd much, I'm sure you'd have much rather uh, had that equipment on top of your um, oh, procedures. Ab- absolutely right. Yeah. Absolutely and right. of course, Al Al have had that sort of equipment for years now on their aircraft because they sort of have a more or less continuous threat uh, to their airliners. So uh, I think it's not a bad idea. Uh, the technology, um, I don't think it's that secret. Uh, that you need to worry too much about it, but that—that uh, that yeah, is an yeah. additional problem. If you've got something on there that uh, you need to keep secret, the military don't want anyone else to find out about. There's going to be added a difficulty for the airline to keep it uh, you know, unobserved and discreet. But it, isn't this isn't this fifties, uh, sixties technology, Nick? It's, it's really nothing new, is it? Um, the laser, no, it's much more recent, but it's still probably uh, 80s, 90s. Um, but it's more the frequencies that they're going to be, uh, the methods they're going to be using, because if they know the technology of the seeker head that's coming up against them, uh, the countermeasure can adjust itself to uh, counter that specific missile. or uh, And so... If you know what frequency the countermeasure is going to work on, you can fire a different missile or change uh, a component in your missile to make it uh, less vulnerable to that. So it's the matter of keeping, you know, one step ahead in the way of the way the missile works and the way the countermeasure works. A lot now, of it's down to simple things like chop rates, frequencies, the way this laser is spread, that sort of thing. I find it interesting, though, that if, if and, you know, all joking aside here, um, you know, I love a good Airbus joke, but uh, seriously speaking here, I find it interesting how they're they're, they're looking at doing this with Airbus jets. Uh, and I wonder if uh, that has to do with the fact that, you know, the 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 autoflot on Airbus, even under normal law, only allows you so much freedom inside of an operating envelope where on uh, other aircraft, you're you're more free to kind of skirt the edges and even sometimes go outside that envelope. So I wonder if that has something to do with that. Um, I don't know. I just I, uh, I wouldn't have thought that trying to evade a missile is going to need more than six degrees angle of a bank and you know thirty odd degrees of pitch or whatever the, the Airbus limits. Uh, and of course, Airbus could. Um, just like they do on the A400, which is all fly-by-wire as well, yeah. they have more relaxed limits. And mm-hmm. if they wanted to, they could have a um, missile avoidance flight mode and you just reach up, press a button, mm-hmm. now you've got more freedom if, right. if Airbus right. wanted to do that. Yeah. So it's, oh, yeah, it's all doable. Well, yeah. I hate to I hate to spoil the, the party here. <laughs> but, what oh, uh, just a couple of days ago... Uh, the FAA halts review of FedEx proposal to install A321 laser-based missile defense system. Uh, looks like uh, they've said, yeah, uh, let's see. Uh, it was re- withdrawing proposed conditions that could have allowed 
delivery company FedEx to install laser-based missile defense on Airbus A321-200 airplanes. The FAA said Tuesday, just a few days ago, it has determined that further internal study is necessary. Uh, To avoid confusion, a comment period on a proposal that the agency is not moving forward at this time, the FAA is withdrawing the notice. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, interesting. It does also mention, I see that it says, uh, uh, the risk is heightened because infrared light is invisible to the human eye. Human exposure to infrared laser energy can result in eye and skin damage and affect a flight crew's ability to control the aircraft. Not quite sure why that is. So I'm just wondering if they're a bit worried about people being sprayed by this technology mm. and being injured. You know that uh, it's happened to me, maybe not mm. too long ago, where you forget to shut the radar off when you block in. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. yeah, there are a few uh, engineers' oh, babies being born now. Yes, I did a walk around on a 727, and it was very noisy. And then when I got back in and closed the doors, and I heard this noise, I'm going, "What is that? It sounds like the radar." Yeah, I've just done my walk around. <laughs> but hey, I'll, I'll add that I think that I've had at least one child, maybe two, since that exposure. So uh, well, that's I good. guess maybe, yeah, of course, they're, they're kind of weird people, but, um, you know, <laughs> they might be part of it. Anyway, yeah, no, I'm just but it kidding. Is, it is just another system you could leave on and injure people. But you've got yeah. strobes, you've got radar. And we, we learned I'm, to... Turn those off. I'm concerned about the man pads. Is that like depends? Those things that uh, if you have, uh, if you're incontinent. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yeah. Just uh, yeah. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. Old ones. And that <laughs> and a slingshot's bad deal. No one so. All right. Okay. Let's. Get well, you to know what? Know us. We're going to uh, skip the other uh, items and news uh, that uh, we'll we'll move to our next show, but. Uh, That means right now that we're going to go to this segment of the show, Getting to Know Us. And sing whatever you want. Steph's not here. Oh, that's right. Steph's not here, so I can sing. Let's see. Getting to like us. Getting to hope you like us too. too. (laughs) Anyway, uh, yeah. Uh, getting to know us that's the uh, segment where we kind of get all caught up with what everyone has been up to since and between each of the episodes and rick we haven't seen you in a while so why don't you go ahead and tell us what's been happening with you well, last time I saw you guys was last year. So it's been a whole year since I saw you. Um, the last couple of weeks of 2021 were pretty busy with the flying. Um, obviously, high season and all that. So I did a couple of flights. Uh, I, I picked up a really nice flight. It was a uh, it was a uh, Memphis to um, San Juan uh, turn. That was pretty pretty cool. I you know never well I'd been down to San Juan a long time ago, but uh, Memphis not so much. So it was uh, it was nice you know going down there having some uh, Memphis barbecue. We stayed at this really nice hotel, the Peabody, right downtown, where they have this um, the ducks. This, uh, yeah, the ducks, the ducks and the and the fountains. That's that was that was really cool. Got to uh, spend. I spent uh, Christmas uh, Eve and Christmas morning there, and then uh, I continued on to do my last turn of the year, which was uh, you know my my bread and butter lately, uh, Ontario to Honolulu and then back, and then that was it for my flying as far as the year was concerned. Um, and then I've been basically home this whole time. I uh, I bid uh, all of January off, which is which is good. I usually do that because Kaya's birthday is on the seventh, so spent 
birthday with her and and her parents were here with their two dogs so uh the, the house was full so that was it was nice you know just a lot of family time here um been doing a lot of work here in the house, looking at doing some renovations here. So uh, dealing with that, and uh, um, just um, I'm here till uh, uh, actually the, the new lines, the February lines should be published here in about another three days, and so I'll know what's uh, going on in February then. Um, switching over from Ontario to Cincinnati, um, so uh, starting in March, I'll be bid in Cincinnati again, which is going to be good because it's going to give me a bit more, a bit better seniority, and not great, but a little better. Uh, Ontario's become a very senior base, which I understand. I understand how people like going to the beach and spending time in Hawaii and all that. Um, so, uh, And it's going to be nice for me because um, even though I do love going up, going to Hawaii all the time, it, it does get a little you know, repetitive after a little while, so yep. flying out of Cincinnati, uh, we're going to be able to you know do b- b- other other destinations. And um, there's a lot of Atlanta's actually um, uh, out of Cincinnati and and Charleston's and all that stuff. So um, uh, I don't know Charleston, Charlotte, so and all that. So um, be able to see you guys in person a lot more. Nice. Um, so yeah, look, look forward to that. So that's uh, basically what I've been up. To. Oh, got another because uh, I uh, we I, I do work with the. With uh, uh, the rescue here, Saving Paws, Arizona, and we just got this cute little one. Well, not little. It's it's a senior dog with uh, we just got a a, a a pretty nasty cut in his right paw there. So we're 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 nursing him back to health and hopefully finding him a new uh, a new home here. So he's been he's been with us. Oh, lovely. Well done. Yeah, well but done. another week. Or, he's been with us for about a week. So we're hoping to find him a home here in the next uh, couple of months. Um, and we'll see what happens with that. So that's what I've been up to. Is he uh, happy with you? Oh, he loves it. He loves it here. Uh, he oh, excellent! Is, he is so happy to be out of that rescue, which is a it's a nice place. Um, it's, you know, a lot of very loving, caring, um, uh, pet nannies they call them. Um, but it's 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 there's a big difference between being in a stuck in a kennel versus um, uh, being in a, in a in a loving home. Uh, the dog's name is Chance Tim. Uh, it's a senior uh, German Shepherd, uh, and so uh, he's he's happy to have a. Uh, a, 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 a nice loving home for now and if we can't find him a home then we might just keep him so we'll see how that goes uh-huh excellent i bet i'll know what happens <laughs> so do i yeah <laughs> and good luck <laughs> there's a chance i might get to meet chance in the future i'm I thinking think there's a chance you'll meet chance yeah <laughs> that's cool all right. Well, Rick, uh, always always nice to have you with us. Um, Thank you. Nick, what have you been up to? Uh, no, I've been busy, but nothing terribly exciting. Um, I've done a few dog shoots. Uh, in fact, uh, that photograph behind me I just took a few days ago. Weather here has been really nice. Uh, we've had a bit of a high pressure sitting on us, so um, clear nights, cold mornings, frosty uh, uh, but nice clear skies, good light, um, and you know, nice photographing, uh, you know, conditions. So uh, I met up with uh, uh, an old client and uh, finished off the shoot I was doing with uh, our lovely air trafficker friend Adam. Uh, so I've got those pictures to finish off. So I'm pretty busy. Uh, that and plane tales, and we haven't actually had that much time off since the last show. It seems mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, anyway, um, things going fine. I uh, hope, you know, I've had a bit of bad back in the past. Well, my Christmas present this year was a really nice uh, 
chair to sit and work at for the many hours idea made by human scale. Uh, and it was not cheap, but it arrived today. And I'm sitting in it right now and thinking, it's very nice. Mm -hmm. This uh, looks the business and gully, it's uh, very comfortable. And so quiet. Hoping... I haven't heard a squeak out of it. <laughs> I know. I know. No yeah. complaints with the chair. No, exactly right. And Nigel's on and he usually whinges <laughs> about something. So you'll uh, have to whinge yeah. about something else now. Yeah. Exactly right. Someone's asking, is that a Walker Coon hound? No, that's a Hungarian Wiesla. Uh That one, uh, Heading Eight. Heading Eight, yes. Um, I, I, I've, been, I've owned Wieslas now for a oh, good 10 years, so uh, yeah. this is about our fourth or fifth. So we're Gorgeous doing well. animal. We love them. Good, yeah, good breed, lovely and breed. The, and the dog is pretty too. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> she's uh, she's getting on a bit. She's nearly ten, which is why she's wow. got uh, uh, a sugar face, uh, a oh. white face. Now she's turning grey, poor love. But oh. yeah. well, it happens to the best of us. Dogs, dogs, are the, dogs are the best. Just dogs are just absolutely. No, that's that's been me, Jeff. Nothing much going on. Oh, oh well, I wanted to mention one thing. I went down to Pima Aerospace Museum, and I went by the gnat. That uh, <laughs> how the hell did you fin one of those? I was a lot younger. <laughs> I, actually, I was Sucked still six three. I was, but I, I, you know, I'm I'm six foot three in and well proportioned, uh, if you don't mind me saying. Okay. Um, so nice. I, I mean, so long as your <laughs> your they, back height and said. your leg length <laughs> doesn't have any unusual proportions, okay. uh, I could just do it. But I was I was literally uh, told I was too big, and the doctor let me do a physical uh, sit in, uh, and then he took his measure around the cockpit to see whether I was actually physically going to hurt myself. And initially, he said. Now you're going to lose your legs if you eject. Uh, but I found that if I pressed really hard on the rudder pedals, I could get an extra half inch of movement. And when I strained hard, he, I said, have a look now, because uh, I don't think I had the rudder pedals quite adjusted. And while I was still straining with my muscles going, he got his ruler out between my shin and the instrument panel and went, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, fair enough, you're fit. And as soon as he took the <laughs> ruler away, I went, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I can relax now. But the alternative was to uh, do my whole course on the Hunter, which would not have been a bad thing. Uh, Nigel went over and flew the Hunter. Mm. and uh, uh, But I, I wanted to fly the Nat and the Hunter, so uh, yeah. I got both in the end. Yeah. It yeah, is a tiny little airplane. It, it's, 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 it's like a uh, it's like a uh, like a phone booth with uh, with wings. And then I saw <laughs> absolutely the, I, I saw the tornado, and I I had at first time I see one in person as well. I didn't realize it was that small. It was it's ah different. oh, yeah, it's <laughs> much smaller than a one eleven, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, and a, and a Tomcat. Yeah, it's not a huge airplane, but the thing about the Nat was your feet are right down by that headlight at the front. You you oh. your feet are right down that nose cone. There's nothing else in there. It's just your legs. <laughs> wow, bit, bit like a Formula One racing car from that point of view. But yeah, uh, lovely little airplane. Yeah, excellent. All right. Well, last time we were together, um, I was in the Sunday. OG um, mm -hmm. studio for APG, APG uh, avoiding the um, wintry conditions up at the cabin. Izzy. And uh, yeah, the Weather Channel uh, named the storm Izzy. 
And uh, I left on Saturday evening, and then the weather came in on Sunday, and the I was I was afraid, or not afraid, but I was thinking that the the power would go off up there, and the, I would be without internet and without heat, and that was confirmed. The power did go off, and it was it stayed off until Tuesday afternoon, and so I'm glad that I wow. I retreated and came down south a bit and um, you know, didn't lose Jeff, power. Do people who live up there permanently, do they have generators or something? I or think a lot of them do, cook? and they have fireplaces. I mean, I could have, you know, I had a bunch of firewood. I could have just kept feeding the fireplace, although I'm not sure what I would have done. Fireplace doesn't feed the internet, though. Uh, yeah, the, the, the fireplace uh, wouldn't have uh, helped at all with the internet, so we wouldn't have been able to do the show. <laughs> but, um no. How's yeah, that work? <laughs> uh, yeah. But and so when I when I went up there on Tuesday just to check on the house uh, or the cabin, and I had to uh, and I and had to pick up some black pants because I had everything with me in Roswell for doing this trip that I'm on now, except I didn't have my pants, and I thought that that would probably not be something that I Didn't should. You noticed, wasn't it getting up. a bit cold? It was a little leathers? cold. I mean, it was my uniform yeah. pants. I was wearing pants, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, but the temperature in the cabin okay. was 32 right degrees. Ooh, so uh, that yes. was a little chilly. So you call that, you call that zero yeah. in the centigrade? Yeah, zero so centigrade. Yeah, um, I was going to say that sounds balmy. Yeah, not not that thirty two, the thirty two Fahrenheit. <laughs> anyway, so I'm glad that I made the decision to come down south, and uh, and then as I was just about to leave the cabin and go back to Roswell, the power came back on. I'm thinking, oh, good. So um, left the good place job. with the power on and uh, went back down, spent the night, and then I started on this trip on Wednesday. And this is day three of a four-day trip. Tomorrow is just a quick one leg back to Atlanta, hopefully. That's what it says on paper. Um, but, oh, I needed to mention one thing. And th- this is really the only thing I have to talk about other than, you know, it's been a good trip and the weather has been reasonably good and all that. Um, although there were thunderstorms in the Houston area on the first night, uh, but uh, we managed to get in without you too much of a problem. Babies. Yeah, I dodged those babies. Um, but uh, so we were talking about, I think on the last episode, weren't we about somebody was asking about sleepy pilots and like, uh, you know, using alarms to make sure that you wake up and you yes. show up to the oh, job. Yeah. And How many alarms do you set? So yeah. coincidentally... Um, last night, I, so I had this, uh, those, what is it called? A key or key charger and the wireless, you know, you put your phone down on the thing and you don't stick anything into the lightning port or the whatever USB-C port. I don't know. You just, you youngsters and your technology. Yeah. You just put it down on the thing and it, (laughs) it's somehow, it's just called a wireless charger. Yeah. I think it's called a, it's like key or she or she or something. I don't know, but whatever. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Anyway. Oh, I'm freezing again. That's probably because I picked up my phone. That's right. Okay, don't touch the phone. Okay. (laughs) So this phone that I was just holding up and messing up the signal with, um, I had on that charger thing, and I set my alarm, and that was the only device. I'm I'm going to change my my practice. I'm going to have some backups. Because in the middle of the night, getting up to use the uh, bathroom, I... You know, I always like hit the phone just to tap on it to see what time it is. And I never do that. 
I never do that. You never do I that. I don't like knowing. I, no, I don't like knowing how, how little time I have left to sleep if it happens <laughs> to be. Yeah, so well, minutes prior to the alarm. Like, that's oh, a good point. So I was kind of like struggling with that, but I went. I'm, I'm going to see, you know, see how much time I have left because I, I was perceiving that I had a few more hours of sleep to go, and so I hit it. And I'm going. Nothing's happening. Hitting again. What's going on? It's not. So the thing had completely drained all the battery. It was completely dead. <laughs> it wasn't in the middle of the charger, you mean? It wasn't taking Apparently power. it wasn't. Yeah, I don't know what the <laughs> issue was, but I, I, you know, got the thing oh. that you stick in, you know, with the with the cord and yeah. I hoped that it was going to be okay for my alarm going off in a couple of more hours. But I'm thinking, wow, what a coincidence. I almost yeah. overslept. Jinxed yourself. Um, wow. You know, and uh, so for- fortunately, I, I happened to, you know, check it and and uh, see that the alarm was not going to go off. And so now I'm going to use a couple of, or at least one backup. So anyway, just how much your, wa- your watch is a good one, isn't it? You know, I guess, yeah, I, I guess that would be a separate thing. I never yeah. think ten, of it as a separate. Hour, ten minutes to the two hour mark. Ten minutes to the two hour mark. Okay. Thank you, Liz. Um so, yeah, I'm going to use my EFB, um, my iPad, as a backup, too. Maybe I'll just use the watch as well, just in case. Now I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be, oh, I'm paranoid. I'm going to oversleep again because these are early oh, mornings. How, how, how much time, how much more time do you have, did you have uh, prior to having a? Uh, I think it was like two hours. Okay, well, that's not bad. Yeah, two or maybe two and a half hours, something like that. But, this is kind of cool. This is an interesting topic because different airlines do it differently. I guess I guess you guys are responsible for your own wake-ups. Is that yeah? Is that we are. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. Nick, the company, was responsible, and probably for you guys too. Yeah. So for us, it's it's really interesting because they give you a a, a PCD, a personal communication device, um, and that it has it's it's basically a, it's it's a phone with a ton of apps um, specific to the, the operation. Um, and then one of them is the, the wake up app. And it's, it's, it's really interesting because, um, uh, scheduling contacts you directly through the wake up app. And then the idea is to have the phone charged and then the phone will let you know, uh, when it's time to wake up and it'll, it'll wake you up with an hour, uh, hour prior to showtime and prior to being, having to be, uh, be downstairs and uh, hmm. to get picked up and all that stuff. Um, and there's different layers. If you don't acknowledge the wake up from the PCD, then the next step is the dispatcher will call your phone, your personal phone. A lot of people will put that on do not disturb, and so you'll miss that call. Mm-hmm. And then the third step is they'll contact you at the hotel room. So they'll call. They'll actually call your room to make sure that you're that you're up. So uh, there's right. there's three layers there, and it, and it works for us because I understand. I, I see how if you're on the other side of the world and um, you know time zone differences, and it's happened to me where what. I've, yeah, I've missed a time. To zone. you? <laughs> Believe it or not. Oh my goodness. Oh man, it was it was and and like I said, you like you wake up and you're like all flustered. And I'm you guys know I like my ironing, right? So I I, I never go to bed what? with you know without having everything set for the for the following day. You know, I mean, the shirt is ironed, the shoes are shined, everything. All the apps are up to date. You know, to to the moment where I did the last update and all that. So I I try to do everything as much as I can the night before or prior to going to bed, so that if I do miss something or something changes, all I really have to do is just pack everything up and just I'm ready to go. So um, yeah, that's kind of how it works for us. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, not the way it works for yeah, the that- old Acme, but. There's always a bit of OCD in there, isn't there? I mean, we have certain little habits we like to do. And then if you don't feel comfortable putting your head on the pillow until you've done them all. 
Yeah. Exactly right. And and then the other thing is that, uh, you know, no matter what hotel I'm in or, or what the room looks like, where the setup of the room is, um, I always leave things in a certain pattern, a certain way. So like, for example, uh, my pen and my watch or my dog tags and my and my uh, or, or or something, you know, it's just it's, 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 it's in a certain place in a certain way, placed in a certain position where I cannot miss it. And if it's not there. Um, then it kind of throws me off. So this oh, is I, I know that, what you mean. You know? Uh, all of a sudden, our, our outfit took uniform hats uh, mm. out of the. We didn't. We didn't wear hats anymore. I had mm. nowhere to put all my junk. So, because I always used to put my hat down and throw everything into my hat, uh, and then uh. I always knew where it was. And all of a sudden, I went, "Oh, where the hell do I stick my stuff?" <laughs> My wife ended up buying me a little coin tray which folded down so it would go oh. flat in the suitcase, and I would clip it up and make it into a little tray, and then everything went in there. Then the hats came back, so I didn't need it anyway. Um, and did you use that as the liner for the hat now? or? <laughs> <laughs> it was a very nice little Christmas. It was even engraved. Oh, was it? Very, really? Oh, wow. Very that, sweet. That is yes. very thoughtful of Gilly. Yeah, very I know. Nice. She's a nice girl. Oh, yes. Very nice. I think you've done well, Nick. I'm, I'm very Yeah, very I know. I know. Your hair looks great, Jeff. Oh, look at that. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, um, we noticed. We noticed. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I think I had too much water to drink earlier and uh, coffee. No, he just he just went to the to the bathroom to make sure that his hair was still uh, spot on. No, obviously, <laughs> obviously I didn't because I don't I don't know what's going on with it today. But uh, all right, uh, yeah. By the way, which one of us is crackling? Because that crackling just it's, started. It's again. my phone, I think. Ah, okay. Yes, that's which that's I'm good. using for the hotspot. So yeah. uh, don't turn it off then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably best not. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's my my crackling. My bad. Which is uh, going Gubby, to irritate he puts the... everything in his his chip hat. What's a which chip hat? Is, uh, our Air Force side hat, a forage cap. Uh, oh. You might have had those in the Air Force, so. like a flight cap. Uh, yeah, like one that folds flat, and then yeah, you yeah. open it up like a little bag. And oh, I've never heard of it referred to as a chip hat. Uh, well, it's like um, they used to fold newspapers to take your fish and chips. Oh. Uh, and oh. they'd fold it like that, and then you put your fish and chips in there. So it would look oh. a bit like a fish and chip container. Oh, cool. That's interesting. I never knew that. Interesting. Cover art, Jeff, huh. from the last oh, show. Oh, yeah. Cover art on the last show. Let's talk about 505. It's awesome. The uh, planes, trains, and dumpster fires. And, uh, yeah, clearly the, the dumpster is prominent uh, in this uh, graphic. <laughs> And uh, it was I was hoping number. if I did the show number big enough, people yeah, would recognize don't, it. But I, it took me a while to f see it. But um, yeah, I, I got it there. It's uh, pretty much in plain view, isn't it? <laughs> Very much so. Yeah, it yeah. was a good title though. I liked it. Yeah, yeah, it was great art. Thank you again for spending the time on it and creative energy. Love it. Okay. Love well. Fun. Yeah, let's do the coffee fund. And here we go. And we play this thing here. Boom. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A, a cup, cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jeff Smith, for singing the APG version of the Java Jive. And that's what we play when we're talking about 
the coffee fund, which is, there are several ways you can support our show. You can just be people that download it and listen to it. That's great. Uh, people that uh, show up for our live recordings and hang out in the chat room and people that send in feedback. And also those of you who have the financial resources to support the show in that manner. A couple different ways to do that. It's called the Coffee Fund Cadre or the Coffee Bar Club. Uh, the first is the uh, classic method, which is uh, you know, either a one-time donation or a recurring. And these two gentlemen here, Chris Randall and David Lieb, are um, uh, recurring or recurrent uh, contributors via the Coffee Fund Classic method. And the other way to uh, be involved in this is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And again, uh, this week we don't have any new patrons, but that's okay. We have a big group of folks that support us via Patreon, and we do appreciate that. So if you're interested in uh, supporting us in this way, head over to co- airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and we will too. Captain, incoming message. Okay, the first piece of feedback that we have today is uh, some video feedback. Actually, it's a a link to a YouTube video. Uh, This is from Brett. He said, um, a great example of people speaking the same language but not understanding each other. A lot like the crew of the APG show. (laughs) Huh? Have fun with this one. Okay. So we certainly will try, and uh, let me find the play button. It must be this one here. Falcon Tower, it's 4362, it looks like, uh, on the departure end of the runway to the left, there's a pen lying on the runway. A what? Actually, 4362, let's say again. So it looks like there's a pen lying on the runway right of center line, uh, close to the edge on the right side. And, okay, I understand something there on the center line. What did you think it was? A pen to make notes on a piece of paper, a pen. Notepad, roger. <laughs> nope. <laughs> okay, I'm Mike, down, tower, call your base. This guy's this controller English. Nineteen uh, I'll send uh, my downwind and tower, I'll call my base. Thank you for your help. We're Charlie Mike. You're welcome. 9203, uh, go around. Around after 9203. Master 4362, did it look like a large notepad, a small notepad? <laughs> it wasn't a notepad, it was a pen, Papa Economist pen. Oh, there's a pen. A pen. Pen. <laughs> a pen. <laughs> And uh, actually, 4362, you said it was near the center line, left of the center line? Just right of the center line. Just right of the center line, and uh, somewhere between a Delta 10 and Delta 9. Pretty much. Was it a gel or a... Parker on a runway 2 to a left. And, yeah, they reported a 10... I think he said right at the center line between Delta 9 and 10. I'm away. Was it a hotel pen? <laughs> 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 
Airport 3, Roger. We'll show you clear. Was it a quality pin? Of course. <laughs> well, that's not, that's of course. Not appropriate. appropriate. Very I was appropriate. Gonna, I was going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> Very good. Oh, man. This guy's got some pair of eyes on him, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah really? either, wow. either that or it's one of those, uh, you know, those clown pens. The, uh, <laughs> those big giant pens. The big pens. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> love it. Very good. Oh, that, uh, that was interesting. That was uh, Falcon Field. I wonder if that's the uh, if that's the one that's close to Atlanta. And uh, there's a I don't know if that's the same identifier yeah, or not. Atlanta. Uh, there's a uh, Falcon Field near uh, Peachtree City in Atlanta. I don't know. They had a kind of a southern yeah. accent, uh, so maybe it was. Yeah. All right. Um, that that sounded very much like Inspector Clouseau problem to me. Yes. Uh, you have a berm. Who is it? Oh, yeah. Does do, your dog bite? Yeah. So, <laughs> do, you, do you have a room? A, a what? <laughs> a room. <laughs> oh, a room. Uh, excellent. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's now time for this week's installment of the Old Pilot's Plane Tales. And hopefully the, uh, the signal, the internet signal will do us well uh, during the Good entire... Right 17 minute and 37 sec, uh, second run of this week's plane tale entitled Rumbas and Quarrels. Here we go. Take it away, old pilot. The old pilot's plane tales. Rumbas and Quarrels. In the last tale, Sidewinders and Sparrows, we talked a little about the history of rockets and missiles, but it's a big subject, so this week I thought I'd expand on the theme a little, and if you're going to mention lots of rattlesnakes and sparrows, one should probably use the correct collective nouns, rumbas and quarrels. Of course, technology has moved on since I last flew with weapons of war hanging off the aircraft. But even if I was a more recent member of the profession of arms, I probably couldn't talk about the latest technology much anyway. I finished up the last tale by mentioning the capability of medium and long-range missiles to take out targets beyond visual range, and how that presented tactical questions. A shooting war in the air is rarely a simple matter of finding a target and engaging it. The rules of engagement, the ROE, for a conflict may well require the fighters to work with one hand tied behind their backs. One limitation when the area is mixed with enemy fighters and returning friendlies might be the need for a positive identification of each and every target. In a complex jamming environment, or with limited electronic methods to confirm your target, a visual ID might be the only way which rather takes beyond visual range weapons out of the equation completely. Older technology might have used optical scopes to extend the range of the Mark I eyeball, but the preferred method was by using IFF, Identify Friend and Foe, a military version of a civil airliner's transponder. 
However, depending on the sophistication of the enemy's equipment, this can be jammed, or perhaps even cloned, so that the enemy aircraft can transmit friendly codes. Ideally, your conflict is fought within the coverage of a JTIDS network, the Joint Tactical Information Distribution System, where players within a battle area join a secure data link system combining information on enemy assets such as an opposing fighter aircraft. Friendly players might be ships, airborne early warning aircraft, ground radar units, air defence fighters, defensive SAM sites, indeed any component of the network which can contribute to the battle picture. Being a part of JTIDS is an easy way to identify players as friendly, and when enough data is gathered about a particular target, it is also able to classify it as enemy with a degree of certainty. However, an aircraft with battle damage or just an unserviceability might have fallen out of the network and could then be classified as an unknown or were still mistaken as enemy. History shows us just how easy it is to suffer a blue-on-blue -blue engagement, often with tragic consequences. In modern warfare, when almost any loss of life is considered a failure, such events are given highly critical levels of publicity. As such, the use of beyond-visual-range weapons can only really be permitted when there's a high level of command and control or the risk has become acceptable. Therefore, air-to-air -air missiles such as the long-range AIM-120 AMRAAM or the old AIM-54 Phoenix have their place, and when they fit within the rules of engagement, we might consider using them. They're often called fire and forget, but that's a long way from reality. Although from a completely different generation, they worked using the same basic principles – the missile would launch with data from the fighter's radar, giving the weapon's guidance system a target area to home towards. The fighter would need to continue to provide data to the missile in flight so that it could react to any target evasion, as the missile's own radar wasn't powerful enough to detect the target until it was much closer. Unlike with a semi-active missile, the Sparrow for example, the fighter's radar could remain in track while scanned during the missile's flight so that multiple targets could be monitored, whilst providing corrective updates to the missile in flight. During the final stage of the attack, the missile's own active radar would come alive and start searching for the target. Once detected, the missile could then take over responsibility for terminal guidance, and only at that point would it become a fire-and-forget weapon. If the fighter failed to provide data for a mid-course guidance, all was not lost. The missile would continue on to the expected intercept point using memorised data, and if the target hadn't evaded, there was still a chance it would be found and destroyed. There are many scenarios, ifs and buts, that we could discuss, but it's best to start with the basic ones and build up from there. 
Let's begin with a simple 1v1 mission, fighter against fighter, using semi-active missiles that require the target to be illuminated throughout the missile's flight. The first consideration is radar detection of the target, which is a matter of physics. The basic factors that will determine the range that a fighter can locate a target are the power output of the radar, the scanner size, and the target's radar reflective area. I won't go into stealth properties which are vital in reducing the radar reflective area of a target as these can complicate tactics. For example, if your stealthy properties are orientated to protect your forward quarter, you might always want to keep that pointing at your enemy, quite different from what I'm about to describe. The more powerful a radar transmitter is, the longer its potential range. But it's not a matter of doubling the power to get double the range. Here we're looking at a square law, so to double the range we need to quadruple the power. Having fired out a pulse of radar energy, it must reflect off the target and come back to the scanner to be detected. Now we must consider scanner size and efficiency, as a big scanner can obviously gather more energy for the receiver to work with. I'm leaving out many other variables, such as the type of radar pulse, the frequency and efficiency of the electronics, and completely ignoring the electronic countermeasure war that will be going on in the background. The fighter that gets first contact has a great advantage, as they can spend time working out the target's parameters and the geometry of the intercept. They can begin to position themselves, which often means accelerating and climbing. A major consideration for missile launch will be the additional energy that we can give our weapon so that it has an advantage over our opponents. If our missile has to accelerate and climb up to a target, it will have a much shorter firing range than if we can launch it while supersonic and give it a height advantage. It takes time to accelerate from a loiter, so the earlier we can start the process, the better. As we approach, we need to separate out our target from the rest of the formation. Not a problem in a 1v1, but in more complex scenarios, the sooner we can discriminate and resolve the targets, the better. Here it's our radar's beam width that plays an important role. The narrower the beam width, the better the resolution. It's a bit like a new television. Our old TV would look very blurry and indistinct compared with the nice shiny 4K Ultra HD screen. Having found our target and worked out his heading, height and speed, we should be racing to a suitable intercept point on his extended centerline, whilst accelerating and climbing to get the best launch parameters. If we're lucky enough to have a track while scan radar, we might be able to get all this information without alerting the target to our presence. He will be keeping one eye on his radar and another on his radar warning receiver. And although he might be seeing and hearing the bleeps and short spikes, telling him that our radar was sweeping over him, that's all he knows. Selecting track while scan gives us more information, but the additional dwell time needed 
can register on an RWR so wherever possible we stay in search mode. Even if we only get a small jump on our opponent, every little helps. We might detect a target at 60 miles and would want a launch at 20 to 30 miles, so with a closing speed of 10 to 15 miles a minute, there's very little time to get organised. The fire computer will be calculating the maximum firing range, but that is dependent on many factors, some of which I've mentioned, such as speed and altitude of the fighter and the target, but one of the largest is the geometry of the intercept. The missile we fire has a limited range, but that will be drastically increased all the time our target cooperates by heading towards it. If we get into the heart of the missile's envelope, the launch success zone, then there is a high probability of a kill, or we could go even closer into the no-escape zone, where it won't matter if the target evades hard as soon as we launch, but that requires us to get even closer. Our tactics at this point may well depend upon the number of weapons available. If we have several at our disposal then a good idea might be to pop one off just inside maximum range. In order to do that, we'll drive to the target's centreline, lock the radar to guide the missile, and then turn to point our fighter in the ideal launch direction, steady everything up for a second, and fire. The target's information will be fed to the missile. It'll be kicked off the launcher, the motor will fire, and off it goes like a steam train. The moment it pops out in front, we'll perform what is known as an F-pole manoeuvre. From our high-energy position pointing at the target, as fast as possible, we'll reverse that situation. We'll turn hard to put as big an angle between us and the opponent as our radar will allow, descending into thicker air and slowing our forward progress, the opposite of our previous aims. This makes it much harder for the enemy fighter to return fire. As we slow and turn, his launch envelope will shrink and put us out of range, and all the time he tries to pursue us, he is making our missile's job and his ultimate demise easier. If he didn't know before, with his RWR screaming at him, by now he's worked out that we have locked, and by watching our F-pole manoeuvre, he'll guess there's a missile in the air coming at him. He has a couple of options. He can turn tail and run, which will almost certainly defeat our first shot, or he can fly a similar manoeuvre and guess that it will be enough to deplete our missile of energy. Whichever he chooses, he's really on the back foot. If he turns but keeps us on radar, he's hoping to survive the first missile coming his way, and as soon as we get back into range, we can turn back into him, fire a second missile, and turn away again. This second missile will have a much greater chance of success. Now we're playing the missile expenditure game. 
In a normal fit, the F-18 only carried a couple of sparrows, which is why something like an F-15 with four AIM-7 missile stations and a powerful radar with a narrow beam width would usually have the upper hand. If our target runs, often called pumping, then we can pursue them and try to run them down. At the same time, we'd break radar lock so they have less RWR information and dramatically change our height so if they chose to turn back, they wouldn't immediately know where to aim their radar and find us. With our radar in search, we also protect ourselves against his wingmen, had they pursued us and not stayed with their leader. What we hope for is our opponent to try to come back at us. Each of their big turns will cost them energy and let us close the gap, and all the time they're cranking their radar up and down to find us whilst we know exactly where they are and are closing into a no-escape zone firing, which will end the engagement. I say end the engagement, but every missile firing as a PK, a probability of kill. PK is a mathematical calculation of the success of a weapon to achieve its aims. It applies to all weapons, and in missiles, there are several factors that might cause a miss. Let's assume the probability of the missile staying serviceable throughout the attack, the launch successful, the motor firing and all the electronics working is a um, high 90%. Then the fuse has to work correctly and the warhead fire, another 90%. The likelihood that our radar will be operating correctly throughout the attack, the lock holding despite the target's evasion and any countermeasures ineffective might also be 90%. Other factors might be the success of the missile intercept guidance in achieving a suitable miss distance, also 90%. There may well be other factors, but just the ones I've mentioned will only give a total probability of kill of 63.6%, much lower than the individual percentages. From a simple 1v1 engagement, we will add layer upon layer upon layer of difficulty through 2v2, 4v4 and upwards. Now we're manoeuvring a whole formation throughout the sky. When we lock to fire, all of the aircraft in the formation do so in a contract so that no enemy aircraft remains untargeted because if we miss just one, then with every radar occupied guiding a missile, that one aircraft can press an undetected attack on us that will go unnoticed until they're amongst us. So all the time our intrepid fighter pilots are working their radars, handling their weapon systems and playing supersonic three-dimensional chess in the air, they also have to keep their eyes out of the cockpit, scanning the sky and checking their six for the one that got away. I just have to say, Nick, that was a phenomenal plane tales. And uh, the only thing I have to say there is I hope FedEx is paying attention. <laughs> because, uh, 
I'm afraid, uh, you know, all, all the uh, young F-35 pilots out there will be going, ah, oh, you old fart. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's real old-fashioned stuff. But, yeah, that's kind of my era. Uh, so, uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, so if, if no, you I'd... are a modern chap and know all about the latest stuff, you probably couldn't tell me anyway, which is a yeah. shame. I, I, I find all this all this stuff fascinating. I mean, it's... it's um it's it's one thing to fly airliners to do that day, day in and day out but a lot of the guys that i fly with are you know former fighter pilots and you know you know folks like you they just bring a whole other you know aspect of uh, flying to to the cockpit to the conversation um you know and you have conversations that you wouldn't otherwise have um you know you, you talk about things and topics that uh, you you didn't know that you didn't know so um, I find Absolutely, that I find, yeah. that I find that fascinating. It's it's quite quite the uh, very very lucky to to be able to have these kinds of conversations. Yeah, actually, I I do know a lot of uh, people who do a lot of flight sim stuff, and some of the gaming sims out there, uh, Edoa Warfare gaming sims, uh, of course they're written uh, and they uh, consulted with um, recent fighter pilots. So actually. A lot of that stuff is really quite realistic. So if you're one of those blokes that uh, does um, gaming sims and uh, does that kind of military-style stuff, you you probably uh, be well up with all the general tactics anyway. My question there is, um, as as you get more and more into the nitty-gritty of the operation and tactics and that kind of stuff, um, where do you draw the line between what's unclassified and what's classified for national security purposes? Because I'm sure that that's going to be something of concern. Because, uh, I mean, I wouldn't put it – I mean, I'm sure that someone in China somewhere is you know, tuning into some you know, YouTube channel somewhere trying to gather intel. And uh, how, do you, how do you keep that from happening? That's a very good point. I mean, the general tactics, as soon as you get into a fighter pilot to speak, it doesn't matter which country you're in, everyone does the same sort of thing. We we all go to school on it, so we all understand. Uh, and you can go and mix with, admittedly, I've only ever mixed with NATO uh, countries, uh, but the 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 Germans, the Swedes, the doesn't matter who the United States Air Force or Navy, they all understand the tactics, uh, and they uh, of course they're using a different airframe, perhaps. Uh, yep. So it might minor differences, um, but we would expect the enemy to know the same sort of thing. The only thing you're really interested in are the technical differences uh the weapons the absolute accurate weapons capabilities that sort of thing that that's where the classification really comes in understand wow yeah fascinating stuff i um i was just getting some internal communications from uh, the director here so we're going to trudge on and uh, continue with feedback four this is from robert who says all i want for christmas is a flight crew and favorable winds he says i hope the crew had a good christmas and survived the covid crew struggles but it appears the past few days have seen some unfavorable westbound winds across the u.s and he quotes a uh, flyertalk.com blog posting regarding um 
making westbound fuel stops uh, late December 2021. Flyer talk. Uh, he said, I was wondering if this is a seasonal thing or just random. Happy 2022 by the time you may get to this feedback. <laughs> Robert knows us. Yes, it is 2022, mid-January. Uh, this from, as I said, Flyer Talk Forums. Um, there was a post about uh, United Flight 2303 being proactively diverted to uh, intercontinental Houston, ostensibly for fuel. The ground staff in IAD is blaming it on high winds in San Diego. <laughs> but considering the METARs <laughs> in San Diego don't support that assertion, it's more like, in his opinion winds aloft that necessitated a gas and go in Houston. If so, why do you suppose that United prefers to do a 90 minute diversion to Houston on Christmas day on the A320, as opposed to offloading some belly cargo in Dulles. So as to onload more fuel and operate nonstop. All right. So, um, this is something that happens um, on occasion, especially with very high winds west to east in the northern hemisphere, especially this time of year in the northern hemisphere when you have, uh, you know, it's wintertime and you have those jet stream winds uh, that uh, dip down into the middle continental United States. And so that, you know, that, that does beg the question, so why not just not take as many passengers slash bags and load up more fuel. And it's one of those decisions that the companies have to make. Um, and sometimes even taking off a bunch of bags uh, doesn't, doesn't make enough of a difference to add enough fuel to make it. So uh, I think that they must have methods that they go through or calculations that they go through to decide whether or not you know, they go one way or another, but uh, it's not unusual sometimes for certain airplanes, certain fleets like the uh, Mad Dog fleet. We used to fly a flight from Atlanta to um, El Paso, and that was kind of stretching our our stage length on that airplane, especially with a, a good headwind. And uh, sometimes we have to stop uh, somewhere on the way and uh, get, or maybe actually, no, it was a uh, Tucson, and sometimes we'd have to stop in El Paso to uh, get a little bit more fuel. But we really would that, not. That is a stretch, Atlanta Tucson. Yeah, it, it I was. was. Say El Paso, eh. and you were constantly. I, I don't. I hate those kind of flights because you're just you know you're just staring at the fuel burn and the fuel gauges and making constant calculations. Okay, do we have to stop or do we? Can we keep on going? And you know you have to. There's a lot of analysis that goes on, you know, to see what your destination weather's like and mm -hmm. traffic and everything else. A lot of communication with your dispatcher and stuff. But um, yeah, so it's not it's not out of the ordinary, really. It's not too common, but it does happen. You'd also find that um, during these during this this, this time of year um, on the westbound flights, you'll you'll, you'll find that, um, and I, I do this myself actually a lot. Um, when flying Transcon, um, I'll actually request a very low flight level. I'm talking mid twenties um, to stay out of the um, the the jet stream because uh, those, those those winds are usually, you know, high twenties, low thirties, mid thirties up to the forties. So usually, the higher you go, uh, yeah, even though the air is thinner up there, and yeah, you know, based on this stoichiometric mixture, you know 
14.69 parts air to one part fuel, all that stuff, um, giving you a higher um, fuel range at altitude. It doesn't really uh, translate when the headwind is 450 knots. So um, it's oftentimes better to just you know drop down to the deck. Well, not quite the deck, but in the mid 20s perhaps, um, and then just uh, <laughs> I see Jeff uh, laughing there because of my stoichiometric <laughs> mixture <laughs> reference. I was, I was just going to ask you, <laughs> stoke it. This is steam trains we're talking about now. No, not stoke it. Sto- stoiky, um What, what would you say? Stoichiometric. I had I. No, never heard of that. Please really? expand. There's an app for that. There's <laughs> so um, optimum fuel burn for any internal combustion engine. It doesn't matter what kind of fuel you're burning. Uh, is um, one part fuel to fourteen point six nine parts air, and that's why as you go up in altitude, the required fuel to keep that ratio at what it needs to be goes down. So um, ideally, as, as we all know, the higher you go, the less fuel you burn because the air is less is, is thinner, and so you you need less fuel to maintain that ratio. Uh, but as, as we were talking about earlier, when we are, when you're dealing with these kinds of headwinds, it really doesn't matter um, how <laughs> how thin the air is when the headwind when wind blowing on your head is 450 knots. I'm just exaggerating, obviously, but uh, that's why I you know oftentimes request a a very low flight level. You know, mid twenties uh, to kind of get underneath all that stuff. The other thing is that, um, and especially in the other on the on the older type airplanes. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I, I did not do that on the know. older type airplanes. <laughs> um, the um, uh, uh, you cannot um, you can't uh, constantly receive updated uh, winds aloft information. Um, uh, the triple seven, seven eight seven, that kind of stuff. You you you've received them by a data link, you know, real time. But on the older ones, uh, you request them and you get them um, every uh, six hours. And so, you, the idea here is to try to fly with um, updated winds aloft. Now, on the ground, when on on your on your pre flight, one of the things that you do is you request winds aloft so that the FMC can give you. Um, uh, your optimum flight level. Now, there's three flight levels that we consider uh, in the cruise. So one is the recommended, one is the maximum, and one is the optimum. Uh, recommended uh, flight level is um, basically uh, the, the flight level that takes into account both wind and weight. Um, recommended is just based on your weight, and maximum is just that, the maximum uh, flight level that you can attain based on the weight that you have. Uh, and so uh, if you have updated uh, winds aloft information, that recommended flight level is going to be up to date. And that only works if the winds, the information that you have is indeed up to date. So now you know about the stoichiometric uh, ratio. How about that? Who was Mr. Stoichiometric? Uh, the guy that came up with the ratio. Oh, yes. okay. <laughs> Stoke. We just call him Mr. Metric. <laughs> this, this is this is oh man this is back from from power plant school oh, wow. wow yeah yeah sometimes Absolutely. like in the uh, uh like late fall early winter uh coming from the uh eastern like new york boston uh the northern eastern seaboard and heading to atlanta and points beyond uh it's not unusual for us to be flying as you mentioned rick at uh like mid 20s or even sometimes 
you know, like 21, 22, just to uh, stay out of that jet stream, high jet stream core winds. You know, as you said, we're going to burn more gas at that altitude, but it it's more than offset by the the lower headwinds that we encounter there. And what's what's really kind of cool about that is that we're used to being up in the 30s, and when you get down like in the low 20s, and you're going along the Appalachians, you go, "Wow, these these are really mountains." I mean, look, oh, it's, exactly. You see them going by you really, really fast. No, it's like, but, but, it, but in, in all seriousness, I was, I was going to say, and I just I just looked it up here. Look, I, I called it up. Basically, stoichiometry refers to the relationship between the quantities of reactants and products before, during, and following chemical reactions. So, um, it's it's um, that, that's so it's a thing, right? Okay, yeah. that's cool. Are you talking about chemtrails now? Uh-oh, yeah, well, let's supposed to talk about that. Mm, yeah. Now, you, yeah. now your Wi-Fi is really going to start failing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm out. <laughs> Excellent. Anyway, uh, Robert, thanks for sending in that uh, link to the uh, Flyer Talk forum. Yeah, it's not unusual. Um, it happens pretty much every year. It's not unusual to be, to be run out anymore. of gas. <laughs> on your way to El Paso. <laughs> um, oh, we had the uh, an episode uh, earlier where we talked about the uh, corporate pilot that was fired, and then you know they tried to get money for his training reimbursed, and and he said no, nah. and uh, you know go ahead sue me. So they did, and then it turns out that uh, he was awarded uh, almost two million dollars, and. We have we have a, a an amazing community here at the APG uh, from all uh, different types of careers and such. And uh, here is one that sent us some audio feedback regarding this uh, this lawsuit and result of the lawsuit. So let's take it away. Uh, this is Anthony. Some audio feedback. Hi, Captain Jeff and APG crew. Anthony Tibbs from Montreal, Quebec here. Long-time listener, but I rarely send in feedback. Wait a minute. It's from Canada. Should we yeah. Should we trust this as reliable? Okay, hang on. Here we go. Only if he apologizes. Uh, <laughs> my day job is primarily in class action and civil litigation here in Canada. And on APG 503, you were talking about the pilot who was awarded almost $2 million in in damages relating to his refusal to fly on a particular day. And of that $2 million, uh, something like $1.4 million was an award for punitive damages. And you were all commenting that you wondered how they got to $2 million when this fellow was already 70 years old and there probably wasn't much future loss of income or anything like that. Punitive damages have no relationship to actual loss. They're an amount that's given above and beyond what you can prove you lost uh, as a punishment or a deterrent, uh, both to the, the company involved in that case and more generally to send a signal to other companies or other parties that they should not repeat the error. And in this case, uh, knowing nothing about the case, I've not read anything about it, I haven't read the decision, I haven't seen any of the materials, but I would suspect 
that there was some argument that the decision not to fly for a safety reason, because he was uncomfortable with the weather circumstance. Uh, you've talked a lot about the just culture and how safety-related decisions that you might make, your companies would generally have your back on that. And it may be that in this case, where it was a safety-related issue, he didn't think it was advisable to go, but the company forced him or wanted to force him to do it anyway, uh, irked the jury in that they should have had his back on that safety-related call. The fact that some other pilot was daring enough to do it and pulled it off uh, isn't necessarily conclusive that it was safe to do it. It just means that they managed to get it done and, and nothing bad happened. Had he flown and the circumstances had turned out very differently, we would be having a very different discussion. So my guess is that the punitive damages were more about uh, the fact that they turned around and fired him for making what is a safety-conscious decision, whether that was for weather, whether that was for fatigue, doesn't really make a difference. Uh, and that's probably how they got to the $2 million. Anyway, hope that helps to understand what they might have been thinking and, and where that $2 million comes from. Cheers and clear skies. Well, wherever it comes from, I want some of it. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I feel like being punitive, so uh, I need some punitive money. Yes. Um, Anthony. Actually, that, that, that explains a lot, actually, because yeah. uh, I was kind of thinking, the guy's never going to earn that amount of money in you know the rest of his flying career. Why is he getting it? But, uh, yeah, that explains why someone thought, yeah, we want to send a message to the company, punish mm -hmm. the company, and the, this pilot just happens to be a beneficiary of uh, that punishment. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you yeah, for uh, to me too. explaining that, uh, Anthony Tibbs. Uh, uh, I still don't necessarily agree with it. I would like to have seen a lot more data about the actual conditions. Then, mm -hmm. um, But there you go. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot more to it that we'll probably yeah. never really know. All right. Yeah, as I said, isn't that awesome? We have people that uh, this is what they oh, do yeah, for absolutely. a living, and they, they can explain it to us and uh, help us all uh, understand. Very clearly as well. Yes. Yeah, I would I would Thanks. I would really like it if some pilots sent in some uh, feedback. Uh, that'd be uh, <laughs> yeah. interesting. And uh, we can we'll explain. See. Yeah, not like yeah, the yeah, stuff, yeah. the crap that we see in the live audience. Gosh. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Look at that. Worthless. I mean, so if you're a pilot <laughs> and enjoy flying, send your feedback at feedback yeah. at airlinepilotguide.com. Uh, and they're all full of um, you know, babies because Scubby's already going to bed. Look. Uh oh. Look that. oh. That what time is it? It's only Six five o'clock here in Canada. Come on. Man. Dark and cold. Uh, cold yeah. Okay. Um, Becky sent in some feedback. Interested in your thoughts. Well, let me tell you what I'm thinking about now. <laughs> I'm thinking. No, no, don't. Uh, oh, no. Don't. Family show, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, she sent a, uh, uh, gave us a link to uh, an article in Yahoo, uh, news.yahoo.com. Airlines around the world have raised concerns about Airbus's A350 paint issues, and now Qatar is seeking 
over $600 million in damages from the playmaker. By the way, I just saw, I think it was today mm-hmm. or yesterday that uh, Airbus basically canceled, not, not Cutter canceling their orders from Airbus, but Airbus canceled Cutter's orders from the really? A321s. It was I, was, yeah, I was at the gym and I saw that. I was like, what? Airbus is saying no to Qatar Airways? And, yeah. Oh, okay. We're not selling you airplanes? Yeah, wow. said, well, if you're going to complain about our darn airplanes, then we're not going to sell you any. That's, that's, ooh, that's throwing the dice, isn't it? Wow. It is. Yeah. It's in- getting interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, Qatar or Qatar has grounded more than 20 of their A350 airplanes since August, citing airworthiness concerns about the surface paint the playmaker uses on the jet. The airline said in a statement that it is following explicit written instructions from the Qatari Aviation Safety Regulator. But I mean, it, this is all this is all new, you know, new new-ish technology. This is uh, yeah, you're talking about um, carbon fiber and um, and the proceed and the the processes required to to, to paint it. And then there, I believe there's a, um, a a metal mesh that goes underneath for for. Um, uh, lightning, uh, dissipation of uh, electrical current due to lightning strikes and all that. And so, I, they, um, uh, Qatar's uh, conven- uh, contention is that um, that system is somehow uh, compromised because the paint is now chipped off, and so now that is exposed. So, I mean, I understand. I understand. Yeah, I mean, it's just that uh, there are a number of uh, countries with airlines who've had this problem, and um, no one else is. <laughs> is concerned about the airworthiness of the aircraft. I mean, obviously, if the paint job on your new airplane doesn't look very nice, it's, it's not great. It's not great for uh, the passengers. Walk up, see lumps of paint falling off the airplane. But uh, yeah. uh, on the other hand, if the airplane is structurally sound and there's no airworthiness issues, yeah, then Qatar don't really have uh, an argument over it. They Airbus will obviously end up fixing the paint job, but... In the meantime, why would you want to ground your airplanes? Uh, I suspect that perhaps they don't need the airplanes at the moment, and so they, this might be some way to exactly. get some money back from Airbus. Yeah. Yeah. Leverage. So, yeah. leverage. Yeah, that's, that's, so that's, that's what I was thinking. My, I just slapped yeah. some Bondo on the damn thing and, you know, drop it out. <laughs> Come on. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to swear like that. So there you go. <laughs> I'm getting a little frustrated from the darn bad signals from my hotel room here. Yeah. I do no, apologize. I quite understand. Quite understand. <sighs> okay. Um, you know what we're going to do? Because of the unpredictability of our signal or my signal, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, just jump to one last item of feedback. And this is from Larry Geezer in Tulsa. And he said, uh, he, he sent us a picture before you show it, Liz, hang on. Yep. No, um, yeah. uh, he, he said, this would look good on Rick Barber. What do you want him? Just a plain cut Barber say no more. <laughs> <laughs> I see what it did. There. There's the plain <laughs> cut right there. Oh, very creative. <laughs> say no more, Sam. I, I, I would just comment there's a bit of a bulbous backside to that airplane. 
I don't know quite what that's all oh, about. I didn't know where you were going yeah. there. It almost looks like an L1011 <laughs> tail. <laughs> it does. It does. It's, it's got five engines. That's what it is. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. So, uh, yeah. Or maybe the barber's uh, uh, clippers or whatever you call them uh, got a little out of control there, out of hand. <laughs> it does look neat, but, uh, I mean, how often do you need to have that recarved into your skull? I don't know. Or, 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 or what you can do. Uh, I guess there's these. Uh, what was it called? Nair or something? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, you just you just trace some nair down that uh, that design there, and then hair which won't grow there. Either that, or just have it uh, your your hair removed with a laser. Um, um, but contact FedEx for that. Um, or you yeah. could take like a torch and just make it a scar. Um, branding. There, there you go. Branding. Yeah, or branding. Yeah, that's that would do it. That'd be kind of more go. permanent. And the hair would never grow back. Exactly. Anyway, so yeah, that's uh, that's pretty cool. Thank you, Larry, for that. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap this darn thing up. Um, had fun. We had a lot of good uh, discussions about uh, our news articles today. Um, yeah. If you want to um, find out more about our show uh, and uh, the, the the co-hosts and the uh, community. And merchandise and calendar, calendar and the coffee library fund. and the coffee fund and plain tales. A lot of detailed information uh, regarding each of the um, plain tales uh, installments we have every week. Check out AirlinePilotGuy.com. I think you'll be happy you did. And we're also on social media or what I like to call the social meets. Bye, Nick. Um, so, uh, <laughs> he usually takes himself out. I, I haven't gone yet. <laughs> okay. Well, then Nick wants to do uh, it. Go I'm ahead. Just Nick. waiting to see. If... There we go. <laughs> uh, there we go. Yeah. Hey, on Facebook. We are on, uh, <laughs> we are on, uh, airline pilot guy, Twitter. Uh, our handle is at APG crew, everything APG related on that fine platform. And on Instagram, we are on APG crew as well. And I do believe Hillel is at the, uh, um, controls of the next, uh, fine, uh, platform, which I believe we call, uh, what do we call we call it uh, Slack, and uh, that's what it is. Hang on, let me see. Hello, hello, are you here? Jeff, this is my private time. Would you let me finish a poo for once? Okay, well, <laughs> apparently this is I'm not glad a good. Only a poo. This is yeah. not a good time for hello. Oh, apparently, <laughs> um, I don't know what. What should we do? Um, maybe you know what? I have a recording of Hillel telling us about Slack, so we'll go ahead and just use the recording. All right. Here yeah, we go. I'll probably, do that. Probably wise, yeah. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S L A C K. Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1 and see you in Slack. All right, Hillel. Hope you're doing okay in there. Appreciate it. <laughs> hope it all comes out okay. <laughs> okay, well, 
Uh, oh, we also, before we go here, we have to thank our producer director, Liz Piper hey. in Toronto. Thank you, Liz. Thanks, guys. Thanks, you are awesome. As yeah. always. Lots of Lovely. lots of great stuff she does behind the scenes. And cheers. yes, cheers to you. And until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. We'll see you next time. Keep that blue side up. Bye, buddy. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly